Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 227. My thanks as always to Tea Leaf Tea and Yeasty Boys. This is a conversation with Charlotte Graham McClay. She is a broadcaster and journalist. Um, she is the New York Times correspondent for New Zealand and she is one of the two Guardian correspondents based in New Zealand. Um, before that, she was a producer, presenter, reporter on RNZ. She is a, a radio-trained broadcaster who has been a, a fill-in host for a bunch of RNZ shows and worked in the newsroom and produced shows. And yeah, so her whole background was radio. In fact, uh, spoiler alert, in this conversation, she will tell you that her first ever published piece of journalism was for the New York Times. So a pretty unreal story. Uh, I've, I've, I didn't know Charlotte, I'd never met her, but I'd followed her work. I'd been reading her work over the last couple of years particularly and she, her name has popped up on the spin-off writing book reviews and she um, has written some creative uh, fiction as well and I, I was just interested to get to meet her and talk to her because I've been following this um, particularly this reported she's done over the last couple of years I mean she's covered the the Christchurch earthquakes and most recently of course the horrific terrorism attack in Christchurch um, it was uh, it was um, amazing to have this conversation with someone particularly um, as I say having just met we got pretty deep about journalism. I really enjoyed this chat. We talked about um, how journalists function on social media these days, uh, whether that's good or not for the job. And we talked about uh, a little bit about the uh, COVID-19 press conferences and how uh, the likes of Tover O'Brien handle that and whether they have the right um, approach and then also whether um, the criticism that they are getting from all of us nobody armchair experts is is actually valid or not so some pretty good conversations to have in and around the story of of Charlotte's trajectory as a, a broadcaster and a producer turned print journalist working for uh, in between RNZ The Guardian and New York Times three of the great, I think, last bastions of journalism. So enjoy this conversation. It is me talking with Wellington-based reporter, broadcaster, writer, Charlotte Graham McClay. As a reporter, as a journalist, as someone who interviews people, um, you are less likely to want to put yourself out on the record in some way. Yep, totally. And that it's not smart to, perhaps. is that, You know, like, that yeah. it's, you've got to play that... It's definitely a dance because you mm. have that, you know, you kind of have to be on Twitter as a reporter these days, which I hate. Mm. And you show a little bit of yourself there, but it's pretty carefully curated in some mm. ways. Mm. Even if you tell a personal story, it's kind of brief and you've chosen it. And then sometimes there'll be people who kind of overstep the bounds and the replies and you're like, oh, I didn't quite mean it to get that person. I have you know? no idea how people who seriously practice journalism and use Twitter because they have to operate. I or, hate it so Like, much. exactly what you're saying. I yeah. don't know. Because I'm, I'm a sort of fake hobbyist that... Um, isn't a real journalist, and I because um, I've been told that enough by people, and and, and I think I think of you as a journalist. Oh, well, what thanks. it's worth, um, but I um, you know so I have my Twitter, and I'm I'm very oh what's the word I'm I seem to I feel like I'm playing Twitter by my my rules, not Twitter's mm, rules. Like mm. I'm really boring on Twitter, mm -hmm. and it's a, a a diary and a journal of 
what I'm the the sort of work that I'm doing the research. Awesome. So I I list out everything I listen to and watch and rah rah rah. And and I will absolutely get into conversations with people mm. if someone asks something. But but I'm not really one of those people that combs through tweets to bust people or or to get a sense of. You know, I mean, I've followed some of your tweets. You're coming around here to talk to me. I've I've looked at some of your tweets because I do. I haven't done I haven't done it for this. You know, I yeah, haven't gone. Yeah. Oh, I better see what the last tweet was. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she tweeted. I can't believe I'm going around to talk to that prick. You know, <laughs> any any of that sort of thing. Like I I know. Wouldn't that be great if that yeah. happened? Uh, if with, I planted it to <laughs> yeah. see whether you would look. Um, I think the other thing about the personal thing is that I have been quite critical of journalists centering themselves in coverage, especially in coverage of tragic things. Mm. And personally, other than not wanting to be a hypocrite, and I understand this is different because you've asked me here to talk about Mm. myself, Mm. um, but I also, I just seen instances of it that just make me feel quite sick, that you think the country can only feel grief about this event if it is miti- if it's mitigated or mediated through the grief of a white reporter. Mm, or, mm. And I also completely understand why reporters end up doing it. Like I so understand that urge mm. of having... Because quite often on stories, especially the really bad ones, you do end up seeing and hearing more than the general public have seen. Mm. And sometimes you're carrying that around feeling like, I wish I could tell people about this. Mm. And so I do understand why it comes out in stories, but I think that's your editor's job to stop that from happening, or your job to stop yourself from doing yeah, that, yeah. because you're not the person it happened to. And so I think I've always been quite nervous about kind of worrying that I was inserting myself into mm. stories. Mm. And I'm sure sometimes I've done it too much and, you know. Um, but I, yeah, you, I really try not to. Do you think you don't really... I mean, you can cautiously decide an approach, but you don't really know that you've inserted too much of yourself into it until it's happened, right? Like, yeah. like you can have a you can have a method, that, a, yeah. a sort of line that you decide you're not going to cross and, and rah, yeah. rah, 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 but you only know on reflection, oh, yeah. that was a bit too... I think, in some ways, news reporting makes it a little bit easier because yeah, sure. it's quite clear yeah, when you've yeah, done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're writing a... Like yeah, well, you're not going to survive, are you? Someone's going to, you know, if you're not yeah. going to survive. Or you role. work for the kind of outlet that really encourages it. So there are some, yeah, there are yeah. some reporters the in New Zealand whose face is in every single story that they do, that they are the centre of every story that they mm. do. And it's not just people watching it for the story, it's people watching it for that reporter doing that story. Mm-mm. And sometimes I feel like that can be quite problematic because it's about the reporter. It's not mm. about the person it's about. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Um, so it is sometimes encouraged, but I just don't think I could work somewhere mm. that did that. Mm. Now, we don't really know each other. Although we, don't. We, we you know, I, I, you know, I've followed your, I know your byline, I know your work, I've, I've, I've followed your stuff, and I was interested that, I mean, I'm always interested in talking to journalists and reporters and, 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 um, I, you know, I, for, for many reasons, and one of them is I talk to a lot of creative people, and I know mm. you do creative writing as well, but um, as many journalists do, <laughs> whether they let it be known or not, like many do, but but also that um, journalism is this interesting thing. It's not, it's not a science, but there is a science to it. It's not um, the arts, but it covers the arts, and it kind of is. Like, it kind of is. Like, I think of it as... There's a creative aspect to it, and not and not in the 
bad and polarizing way that people talk about with the journalists like you've made that up rah, rah, rah. there is actually like a creative art to it so why do you do it how did you get to it I was a really strange child and like I, I think first of all one of those really type a kind of driven <laughs> where children. were you where were you in the um, world as a I child? grew up in Papakura in Auckland and I was really into creative pursuits from a young age. I started um, dancing when I was four, and just by the time I was, say, six, I was super committed, you know, and mm. was kind of thinking, oh, maybe I want to be a dancer when I grow up. Wow. Um, and so that was always kind of one possibility. And then the other possibility, um, my mum was really big on us not watching any TV but for some reason, like with the occasional exceptions like Sesame Street, because I think mm. that's the law or whatever, mm -hmm. but um, we were allowed to watch the news. Um, and so I watched that shit like a soap opera. <laughs> that was your TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was, was like, your... <laughs> clear the deck, yeah, this yeah, news yeah. time. Appointment um, viewing, this yeah, is my yeah. time. And yeah. so I don't know, I don't know why uh, the, the fascination with this, but certainly when I was still primary school age, I was definitely reading... Kind of once I got into chapter books, I would read books about, you know, war or the Holocaust or, yeah. you know, like written for kids. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, but a little... But the serious side of... A little weird. And yeah, I would yeah, kind of yeah. obsess on that stuff and um, would have a lot of questions and... Like, when I was really young, like, five or six, um, Freddie Mercury died of AIDS, mm. and it was my dad's favourite musician, so it was my favourite musician, mm -hmm. we used to listen to it in the car all the time, and I just remember having, like, so many questions, and then kind of getting in a little bit of trouble, because I went to school and wanted to kind of talk to everyone about it. Do, do your speech on AIDS? Yeah, pretty much. But I, you know, I was like five, yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. kind of freak child? Anyway, so, yeah, so I guess that's all a long way to say. By the time I was, I think, an intermediate, I'd kind of found kind of biographies of journalists mm. and I remember one in particular that was about a, a New Zealand journalist and cameraman had like they'd written kind of half each and they were kind of from TVNZ and they're foreign correspondents and they had the like baggy 90s cream linen suits mm -mm. and I just thought it was the coolest shit in the world <laughs> Cameron Bennett's book yeah it was Cameron yeah, yeah. Bennett's Cameron, book and I read it in yeah. the intermediate like foreign correspondent yes yeah a classic. Yes. I reckon it's a, a, a crucial textbook for, um, for that time yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I just thought because, well, what I would now call injustice, but I would never have called it as, you know, wanky, anything as wanky as injustice when I was that age. I just wouldn't have known the words. But those kinds of things in the world really upset me, like really ground my gears. And I just thought that would be cool to get to go and tell people about that stuff because quite often it seemed like people didn't really care enough about it, which I now know is a really complex mm. proposition. Um, so, yeah, I think I was just quite driven on both of those things. And when I was 16, um, I saw an ad in Tearaway back in, like, mm. peak Tearaway mm. when it used to be in every McDonald's mm. in English classroom in New Zealand, and they had an ad saying they wanted student reporters so I thought, well, this is kind of my chance and um, ended up writing for them the last couple of years of high school and, um, and 
at the time, I think because of my age and because of what I did for them, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a cool music journalist. Because, you know, like, I went to interview. There's no such thing. That's yeah. an oxymoron. <laughs> I then I'm lived that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, um, in terms of, like, the actual jobs <laughs> yeah, available. Yeah, um, So I went and interviewed Shehard, and mm. I interviewed, I did a cover story on LMNOP when that kind of yeah. first album came yeah. out. That was a real moment. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, I went and hung out with them at a radio station um in Auckland where they were hosting a show mm. and um spent the afternoon there and at one point they were like you know handing around beers and I think they probably forgot I wasn't 18 and I didn't take it because yeah, yeah. I was a massive nerd but yeah. I remember like putting it in the story thinking it was really cool and my tearaway <laughs> editor was like no take that out <laughs> um and it was it was on the cover and I just remember being like ah oh, this is the best feeling yeah um, man uh, she had uh, covering she had is clocking music journalism in New Zealand. And they were Especially always back then. so That's basically, nice Yeah, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Like, I interviewed them a few times when I was quite young. Yeah. And they were always just so cool. They treated me like I was from Rolling Stone or whatever. Mm. Like, they were, just, they were just as nice and generous with their time and stuff. Mm. And they'd be like, oh, are you coming to the gig? Do you want to, you know, come say hi, blah, blah. I think the, the, the super cool thing about John Tugger, and I, I, I had a really long chat with him for the podcast mm, recently, so, yeah. so I feel okay saying this because I don't know him super well but we've met a couple of times and interviewed a couple of times is he's a massive nerd and he 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 wears that like Mm -hmm. whatever cool cachet he has or had when she harbour at their peak it's born from him just being a giant nerd who loves music and and that's really infectious when you're around him Mm. you know I had him on this RNZ show I hosted last year maybe it feels like the last year has been 57 (laughs) years old where I had people come on to talk about their favourite musical artist and he came on and talked about David Bowie Mm. we played David Bowie songs it was one of my favourite hours Mm. of radio that I've ever done Um, it was so much fun so yeah, yeah that's how I bonded with him actually was David Bowie chat like oh cool yeah 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 because I I'm, I met him properly I would met him once after a gig years ago and I'd interviewed him on the phone a couple of times but like right at the start of last year which again just feels like forever ago he was in Auckland and I was there and we were going to do the podcast and it didn't quite pan out but we went and had breakfast and just had a chat which ended mm. up being a really nice way to approach mm. it with him and so we just he talked about the couple of times he'd seen Bowie and and um, he'd seen him during the outside tour of 95 and I'd just been published in this international book for writing about that because I seemed to be the only person that wrote about that era. So they, when he died and they put this book together, they grabbed mm. my piece. So um, he was into that, and so we just had this big... And so then a few months later when I was in Melbourne and actually sat in with him, it's like we'd done the speed dating thing first, you awesome. know? It was cool. Yeah. I love getting to do that. Yeah. But yeah, It doesn't get to happen very often. It does not. That's yeah. very true. Especially with well-known people. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. straight in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after high school, by the end of high school, I decided it was journalism, and um, my family kind of um, ab- quite abruptly moved to Brisbane at the end of high school, mm. um, and I enrolled in a journalism kind of degree course at University of Queensland. Um, but before I started the year, I was at a gig wearing a New Zealand Music Month t-shirt, which again was a staple at the time. And some guy also wearing a New Zealand Music Month t-shirt was like, hey, what the fuck? Um, and then he said he hosted Talk a... Talk about having a target on your back. <laughs> yeah, literally.
Clearly. Um, and so he said that he hosted a New Zealand music show on this um, kind of the BFM equivalent mm. radio station mm. in Brisbane. And I had said, oh my gosh, I'm studying, I'm about to start studying journalism at uni. I really love radio. Like, you know, and he said, well, do you want to come and um, like hang out mm. sometime? Mm. And so I think then some guy at the station who actually had some authority was like, you can't just have people come hang out on your show you know she has to come in and kind of yeah. do an interview and I think just thought I was some random who he had found in a bar <laughs> which I, I mean I was yeah yeah, but, yeah and so I was told I had to come in for this interview and I just took it so I was still 17 at the time I took it super serious I just yeah. I, I can't even imagine what yeah. they must have thought because I was dressed like the massive 17 year old nerd who'd spent all of high school in a ballet studio that I was right like my dad like dropped me off and I had got all my tearaway clippings and cut them out and like pasted them into a black book. So I yeah. had like a clippings book because yeah. I was like, I got to impress these guys. Yeah. And you know, it's like BFM radio. So they're all really good at radio, but they're also all just like sitting around smoking weed, talking yeah, about yeah, music, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I showed up with like my ponytail and my book of clippings. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but I think this, this guy was really skeptical when I arrived and then was flipping through and was like, yeah. And then he turned out to be the greatest guy and um, invested a lot of time once he saw that I was serious and wasn't just another one of these mm. kind of teenagers who thought it'd be cool to hang out at a radio station mm -hmm. um, and actually wanted to do the work and learn stuff. And so he kind of taught me how to start putting a news bulletin together and um, all that kind of thing. And then at the same time, I was going to these university journalism lectures that had like 300 people in them. And it would be some guy who had never been a journalist kind of doing a lecture about journalism. Um, it was like the day a week I spend at the radio station. It's like the best day of my week. And then uni just felt really underwhelming. And I think I, I kind of wish that I'd stuck with it because I think part of that is that youthful thing of thinking, I just want to go out and do it mm. now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, halfway through that year or so, I enrolled in, um, or I auditioned or kind of applied for New Zealand Broadcasting School because I thought, I just want to work in radio I want to do it ASAP. Yeah. So um, I moved back to New Zealand by myself, moved to Christchurch, which I'd been to like twice. Um, and yeah, and did a broadcasting degree. And so that kind of, yeah. Yeah. And what was the outcome of that? What did you go straight to do? I, so the last six months of the degree, you do a Placing. paid internship. Yeah. 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 Um, so I was really lucky to get mine at Radio New Zealand. Um, I was a bit of a little asshole about it in that I was like, I'm applying for Radio New Zealand and TVNZ and those if I don't get yeah. either of those then <laughs> I'll just go off and do something else. Like, I'll be a dance teacher. Yeah, 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 something yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'll go back to uni and yeah. do law or um, So I, yeah, so I was really fortunate. Um, Turned out to be the right move. Yeah, you, I did this gotta, interview. You've got to do that, right? Yeah, they came, they came to broadcasting school and did interviews and again was just super lucky in that the newsroom that I ended up in was the the RNZ Christchurch newsroom, and this was pre-earthquake, so it's a real full-scale operation now. Um, but before the earthquakes, Christchurch was still kind of considered a regional mm. town for mm. reporters, so mm. you knew all of the journalists there. A lot of places were one or two-person operations, and Christchurch at the time was kind of a two-and-a-half sort of person operation. The senior journalist there was amazing, um, and again, just gave me a crash course in a mm, year mm. um and but it meant that you got to do everything it meant that i was you know at jade stadium my first day 
covering a mm. Black Caps press conference, which is a disaster because <laughs> I don't watch cricket, so I'd had to like Google who yeah. are the Black Caps. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Weekend. Um, and what sport is black caps yeah <laughs> it was basically that um, and you know within like a month was covering a, you know the first horrendous murder I'd ever covered um, and you know was in court for trials all the time and that kind of thing so just got an amazing range of experience mm. that is still really relevant to me now like I still use a lot of the stuff I learned in that first year but you can I mean I'm sure every reporter's got a version of that story of basically everyone's thrust in at the deep end. Mm. But, but you know, you've grown up in an era of journalism under Google and the internet, which is pretty, you know, you can become a, you can fudge a pretty quick study of something, right? Like, this, yeah. is, this is not demeaning your process at oh, all, but no. just, just like, I think back to, and, I, and I'm kind of the same in that I can remember going and interviewing people um when the internet was functioning, but it wasn't functioning on anywhere near the level it is now. So you pretty much couldn't Google people, Mm. you know, and if you did, you might find some abandoned GeoCities kind of thing, you know, like you really went off, you know, you had your press release and you went and asked people and then you just, you know, went and talked to the person. And I'm, I'm talking about interviewing like athletes and yeah, I guess some musicians right. and stuff and you yeah same thing like I one of my first interviews was with a with a skier I've never been snow skiing in my life um I know what it does <laughs> I know what people do but I really had to go in and go I hope she's a decent person yeah. and I hope she's used to explaining what she does to people and she probably is and and she was <laughs> but yeah like now you can at least yeah. yeah, and I think sometimes there's two sides to that because Absolutely. sometimes you hear interviewers going way over prepared, and sure. you think just let them just let them tell it. Mm-hmm. And I've I've worked with definitely one host at RNZ at one point who preferred to go into the interviews knowing next to nothing. Mm. He just wanted to explore the topic alongside them, and he could do it in ways that were really cool. But I always knew that that wasn't my style. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, you find what works. Mm basically for you so okay so you 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 are having these experiences and obviously literally learning on the job mm. which is and i was really 20 good i should say yeah, i was yeah, 20 yeah. when i started there so i yeah. was like a fish yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you, yeah and i was quite i know people never believe this because they just see my work persona but i am an introvert and i was very nervous and shy and i just remember i used to walk across this bridge in Christchurch to get to work and I used to feel like I was crossing this bridge and I would kind of turn into this different person who would go and knock on people's doors and mm. and get hung up on all day by people who didn't want to talk to a journalist which I think was something that probably would have made me cry before um but yeah you felt like you were being this adult high, high number of introverts yes in it yeah. and I think a lot of people don't know that you know, I guess you wouldn't instantly guess that. No. When you, particularly when you're either, as you say, seeing and reading a person's work persona, or um, or they're presenting and they've learnt to put on yeah. the armor. And also, you're cold calling people quite often all day, which is an mm. introvert's worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that to yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pick up the phone and ring strangers and yeah, and get and get and explain get really quickly or... why they should stay on the phone. You know? Yeah. Um, but then I, I, I love talking to people for work. 
like it's one of the coolest it's one of the privileges of it is that you get these insights into people's lives that you just think I can't believe you shared that with me right? aren't people fascinating yes. you know and and yeah like I've done a little bit of um work up at RNZ as a producer occasionally mm. and on, on a couple of different shows and so yeah suddenly when you're like like it's it, it's very easy for me to ring up a musician or email a musician and go hey we're going to have you on the show this week it's a, a live to air with an interview component what have you been up to these are the questions kind of thing like that's easy but then ringing Tolagabe Farmer and asking him to discuss the the weather and reflect on when he lost everything a few years ago in a vicious storm is a skill set you have to you know you have to go wow on one level I can do this because this needs to be done but how am I how am I going to do it and then when you're hearing it you're like okay I might not be all that interested in farming but this person's just top essentially told me about their life and how they rebuilt their life and so it is an enormous privilege. Yeah. And finding a balance of how to do those kinds of things mm. is such an ongoing, constantly refined pursuit, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's no... You get your techniques and you get your style, mm. but you get it wrong. Um, oh, yeah. You know, straight after getting it right a bunch of times, you get it wrong and you're back to... And you have that self-doubt of fuck, have I just been kind of elegantly bluffing for years and do I really not know how to do this? Mm. Which, again, is probably kind of introvert's worst nightmare, right? Mm. Like that whole sort of idea of, fuck, I'm actually no good at this. Mm. Mm. I got this massively wrong. And then you have to go, well, hang on. Was that person having a bad day? Or, yes. or was I? Or was it the awful sort of perfect storm of us both having bad days? Or did it go yeah. well because we were both... Because you never know. Yeah, and often it wasn't as bad as you thought. That's right, yeah, um, yeah. And I think quite often as well, oh man, there's so much to this topic. And I think there, I had got to an understanding of how I did those kinds of difficult stories. And then Christchurch happened last year and it completely changed so much of what I thought I knew about that. So my practice has been really refined again since then. Um, but you still don't, I mean, it's now been, I've been doing since I started RNZ anyway for 14 years mm. and I had one the other week that normally I'm one of my skills is building rapport right away when I do an in-person interview like normally that's not a hard part for me and sometimes I might think if it's someone who is coming from a really different worldview to me of how I might do that when I mm. walk into the room and what will their natural reticence be or reluctance be but a lot of the time it just comes pretty naturally um, and I had one recently that I kind of walked in and sort of started with the self-deprecating, joking kind of side, which is is me genuinely, mm. um, and that I thought this person who comes from a massively different worldview to me would relate to, and he just really took issue to it and was really prickly about it, and I really had to scale it back fast because <laughs> I was like, shit, this is... But, but in hindsight, when I reflected on it, I think he was probably equally as nervous and that he was like, oh, fuck, why did I, a fucking Guardian journalist just come? Like, why, mm. what, <laughs> you know, why mm. am I doing this? Mm. Um, and he was probably also on guard. And so then when he felt like I was kind of making a joke about the, situa the situation and how it was, you know, a little bit unusual, um, he kind of reacted with, you know, thought maybe that I was judging him and actually mm. I was just, you know, pointing out that it was a slightly weird situation. And 
so you never yeah i will be refining that until the day i quit journalism or die <laughs> mm. yeah yeah it's yeah it's funny isn't it and and you mentioned you say christchurch last year and of course christchurch is a, a is a shorthand for tragedy now a couple of times over mm. we say oh that was before christchurch Mm. and we used to mean the, the earthquake, earthquake and we mm. still sometimes do yeah. and people can usually tell but now we mean last year's horrific event yeah and and yeah so it's it's switching and which is which is very sad for many reasons including for a lot of people in Christchurch to have the the name of their place mm. reduced to that so you you mentioned working for RNZ in Christchurch before the earthquake were you there during no, I You'd had moved. moved to Wellington by that point. Okay. Um, my boss had thought it would be a good idea for me to come get some experience in a, a big, proper big news, city newsroom. Big city, proper newsroom, um, yeah, yeah. And I actually enjoyed reporting there less because, first of all, there was a lot of competition for stories and quite often there was seniority, mm. as there should be. Like, by yeah, this yeah. point, I'm 21, yeah. I'm still like, yeah. no, I should get to do, <laughs> go out and get to do, like, the best story of the day. And it's like, of course, I haven't, you know, I haven't earned that and I mm. don't have the experience. Whereas in Christchurch, if there's only two of you on and the senior person's already out at a story, then you're it. Like, they can't really be back. <laughs> mm, mm. And sometimes a producer would kind of talk me talk me through it be like well when you go out make sure you get this and this and this and you ask this which is a great way to learn um whereas in wellington it was a lot more reporting from the desk i still enjoyed it i loved being in the in the newsroom vibe and getting to see more of how everyone worked um but i actually ended up taking a job as an editor um partly because it seemed fun which it was and I didn't want to sit at a desk all the time, I thought. Like, I thought if I was going to sit at a desk all the time, I may as well do something mm. challenging and different. Um, yeah, so I wasn't in Christchurch at the time of the earthquakes. However, weirdly, and I did cop a lot of shit for this, I was the editor on desk both times, like the September quake and the February quake. Mm. Um, so... As the kind of bulletin editor, your job is to be the person who gets the news to air. Like, the butt kind of stops yeah. between you yeah. and the newsreader. Yeah. So, the first one of those, you'll remember, happened at, like, 4.30 in the morning on a... Mm. I think on a Saturday. Yeah, it did. So, it wasn't even... Normally, you'd have a morning report producer over, overnight mm. during the week. Mm. But on that kind of day, on a weekend overnight the only people in the building were it's, you, the editor, yeah. and the person on air. Yeah, it's, pr it's close to dead air, yeah. dead studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was Vicky Mackay and I, and so between us, we just had to cover this event live until people got there. Um, and I actually remember a friend of mine um, had been out and slept through his alarm with a hangover mm. and was due to start on the 5am shift and things were so hectic that I didn't look up until about 5.30 and realised he actually wasn't there mm. and so I had to call him and go, I don't care what the situation is, just put some pants on and get here, like whatever yeah, state yeah. you're in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think now, of course, Radio New Zealand has all of these protocols in place, partly because of this event, of how that how you cover disasters. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it was literally just Vicky and I going let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, until people got there. And, like, we woke up a bunch of people. But um, And so then several months later in 
February. Mm. Um, I was getting towards the end of a morning shift and... Yeah, what was that? Happened, that was a Tuesday afternoon, again. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, around lunchtime. Yeah. And, yeah, it was really apparent really quickly that that was... That that was just... And so you're just putting... Like, the thing I loved about editing is that it's kind of like tetrising a bulletin together. You're slotting mm-hmm. things. And when you get the right mix and it's presented really well... It's just so satisfying, even though your name will never mm. go on that work and mm. no one will know it was you. I used to sit at home and I would know which editor was on. I wouldn't be able to tell now, but yeah, at yeah. the time I knew who had edited Bulletin just yeah, from yeah. listening to it. Um, it was such a fun job. Um, and so, yeah, I just remember all afternoon just being like one story in front of the next. What do people need to know? This and this and this and this. And RNZ had kind of gone, however long the bulletins need to be, just make them that long. Which mm. you never get told. So we were doing like 15-minute bulletins or whatever. Um, and then it wasn't until I got home and actually watched some TV news that I kind of even yeah, realised yeah. what had happened. Yeah, yeah. And the experience of walking out of the building onto the terrace and people just walking around going yeah, home yeah. from work was just like yes you're in this weird sort of bubble of where you're obviously not um it isn't happening to you but you're so deep in the coverage that mm-hmm. you're, you're not you're not in a place that's removed from it you're mm-hmm. not actually in the place where it's happening but you're not in a place that's completely removed from it. Mm. And you walk out into the world and go, and almost like, do these people know what I've just been through? Yeah. Like, not that you want a pat on the back, but just like, how, how are they okay and I'm not? Yeah. Yeah. And even just not being able to, you don't have time to get on your phone and text everyone you know in Christchurch and check that mm. they're okay. Like, you just have to wait till work's done and then do it. Mm. Um, so you just, it is a little bit selfish in a way that you just have to, I mean, I, I kind of felt the same with the, the Christchurch terrorist attack and that. Um, so at the time I was writing for the New York Times and I was the only reporter they used in New Zealand and so had been covering it from Wellington since it happened, immediately bought a flight to Christchurch. The flight got cancelled because they, mm. you know, they were shutting down a lot of flights mm. and um, managed to get on the Prime Minister's plane for the next morning. She was flying down with a bunch of mm. other politicians in the press gallery and um, just pretty much worked through the night from my couch. And I remember my husband came home at some point and obviously was just like, I know I just need to leave you to that. Um, I think at some point during the night, I realised it was like a cold pizza next to me. And I was like, cool, I'll have some of that. Um, And then the next morning pretty much went, um, I'm like, I have to, get on this plane in half an hour and so I guess I'd better have a shower and pack and he drove me to the Defence Force base where it was leaving from and it wasn't until I went to get out of the car that I was like we never talked about this because at the time we didn't know what was happening we didn't no. know if they'd arrested yeah, everyone yeah, yeah, we didn't yeah. know if there was going to be more yeah. um, I certainly wasn't making any promises not to do anything dangerous <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I went to get out of the car that I just thought oh I haven't actually said to you how do you feel about me doing mm, this? It mm. was just, and he knew as well when we talked about it much, much later that it, of course I was going to go. Mm. I had to go. Um, and I kind of, I didn't even know really what to say to him other than like, I love you. I'll see you when I see you. Like, <laughs> you know, I couldn't even tell him when I was coming yeah, back. Yeah. I didn't have a flight back. I didn't, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and so it is it is kind of a selfish thing in a way in that um that you just can't really care about that stuff no until can you at what point do you go because there's an adrenaline that kicks in around the necessity of the task and the enormity of it but also and 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 the thrillers and the chase always with the story and all of that but are you able to sit back ever and go um i'm really proud of that work from a work point of view or do you just go i'm really proud of that because it had to happen and i i just happened to you know what i mean like it's uh, what i'm getting at is it's an odd thing to want to take credit for a piece about just straight breaking news that's Mm -hmm. enormous for everyone and catastrophic but at the end of the day someone has to do it and Mm. it requires uh skills that you perhaps didn't actually know you had Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you've been working away at Mm. but it becomes this real test of character and do you go yeah i do i did good do you have a moment of reflection or does that come much later quite often it takes a long time Mm. on that story it took a really long time um, because it's still ongoing, like I still mm. t- talk mm. to the families I yeah. met a lot, um, and also because it was so devastating, and because I met a family very early on, like in the early days, who I'm, I consider them friends now, mm. um, who I was just watching them go through the most unimaginable thing, you know, um, but certainly there were moments like um, there was one story I wrote that pretty much. I came home from covering it and actually weirdly just couldn't even process what had happened. I'd just been to um, this funeral for 25 of the victims and that was again just one of those experiences. Like, I don't even know what Mm. that was. Um, I knew I had to write this piece and I'd spent chunks of time over the course of the week with this family and the idea was that it was going to be basically an obituary for their loved one that ended it that started kind of from when I'd first started talking to them about him and then the end of it was going to be the funeral because he was one of these 25 people who'd been buried um and so at this point we'd also been sleeping for like three or four hours a night because we were turning around Mm. a couple of big pieces each a day Mm. um so I think the lack of sleep had also contributed to the fact that I was just going on autopilot, I mm. still couldn't really believe that it had even happened. Um, and so I got back after this funeral and kind of thought, you know, it was about eight o'clock at night. I had like a few hours until the piece needed to be turned in. I'd be, been talking to this family all week. And I just remember thinking, what, how do I mm. write this? And write it for the New York Times as well. So it's kind of, it's got to be good. Yeah. It's got to be yeah. in their style, all <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I was really worried about getting things culturally wrong with the funeral that I'd just seen. I wanted to make sure I got it all correct, mm. um, my descriptions of things. Um, and so weirdly, I got into bed in the place that I was staying with the laptop in my lap, and I actually listened to Space Odyssey for 30 minutes. <laughs> just like, just, <laughs> just, you know, and just stared into space. Um, and then... Um, which I don't normally do on stories because you don't really have the luxury of that kind of time. Mm. It just collected my thoughts for 30 minutes and then I just wrote the story all in one go. It was one of the fastest I've ever written anything. And I look back on that as one of, I think, one of the best pieces of journalism I've ever done. But I definitely couldn't feel like that at the time. Mm. Like, I woke up the next day and couldn't even bear to go and look at it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that 
that changed things a little bit for me on that story was I still don't know who, but someone in the New York newsroom um, had me sent the um, you know the aluminium press plates that they yeah. that they do to print the yeah. newspaper yeah. with um, the first the first A one of the New York Times that I ever had with just my byline on it yeah um, they had got the press plates from that and I I, I don't know how they knew. Yeah. I, I guess they assumed that the reporter in New Zealand had never had a front page of the New York Times before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because whatever would have happened that would yeah. have um, generated that. Um, and sent, got, had them FedEx to me in New wow. Zealand. And so this this thing showed up um, via our, our Australia Bureau, actually. Yeah. Um, and that was, again, a really bittersweet thing because it didn't feel like yeah, an yeah. achievement to celebrate. And I haven't kind of put them up in my house or anything yet I, they're still just in this FedEx envelope but it did help it's me to important feel really to have that, proud of what I've done it's important to have yeah. that and one day it might be that it is is displayed in your home but even yeah. just to have it yeah 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 for sure yeah um I want to learn a little bit about I mean you've you've dropped in that you've worked regularly for RNZ which is really in journalism in New Zealand arguably about as good as you can get in terms of, co- of a consistent thing I to do yeah. yeah and but you've also dropped in that you work for and write for The Guardian and The New York Times and so these are three of the kind of bastions of, of what's left of journalism so apart from you being dedicated to it and good at it how has that happened because you know that there, there's a lot of people that are dedicated to it oh, and good totally, at it and yeah. so I, I, I I'm not asking you to justify it I'm curious to know how what the steps have been I love how you worded that question because I get how did you get that a lot yeah and I completely <laughs> understand where so it's good? come from yeah. <laughs> yeah but especially sometimes when it comes from other journalists especially you men. think that they're thinking well and, and Why I not do me? Yeah, I, have, yeah. I have men email me wanting the contacts of my editors so that they can have my job. Yeah, yeah, wow. And they just expect that I would hand it over because, of course, they'd be better at it than me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for keeping the seat warm, Yeah, yeah, I'm ready, I've arrived. Um, It's just, yeah. And the youngest man who did that to me as well was someone who was still at journalism school, like still would have been a teenager. (laughs) Just like... It's that that easy. Yeah, exactly. I'm not talking down, and I'm sure this person's a fantastic young reporter, but you think... Part of what makes experience needed on jobs like this is that quite often, even though the New York Times is a super stringent editing yeah, process, yeah. Um, they don't know New Zealand quite often. Mm. And so you're being trusted to frame and editorially direct stories in a yeah. way that no one might actually question yeah. if you get it wrong, um, which is a little terrifying. But um, So yeah, I worked at RNZ um, for like nearly nine years, I think, um, as an editor, I was a producer for a long time. I ended up producing Nine to Noon for a mm. few years um, and kind of ended up hitting a bit of a wall. Not that I couldn't have got better at that job. I love your dog. Oh, yeah. He's, um, a, he's a cameo in all of these. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I definitely had more I could have done in that job. I worked with some amazing women on that show. I want to cut in and say, from my experience, that... Um, 
again, as good as RNZ is, one of the kind of tough top jobs you can have is producing nine to noon, right? Like, not not to minimise anyone else's job producing afternoons or nights or any of the other shows, but that's the hard news show. That and Morning Report are the hard news shows where you're reacting in real time mm-hmm. to... Yeah, and Checkpoint's very much yeah, the yeah, with that as yeah. well. I think producing 15 hours of like yeah, radio yeah. a week is yes. absolutely wild. And if we were some NPR show in the States, it would be a cast of thousands. Yes. But people wouldn't realise that we would have, you know, one of the producers would go and put the show to air every day. Like, whoever had the mm. least work to do that day would Goes be responsible for going. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's very much everyone chips in. It was a yes. real team show. Yeah. Um, and I think... I, it was a combination of things. Um, at the time, I don't want to talk about it too much because mm. the leadership mm. and things have changed since then, but at mm. the time it was quite hard to progress and develop at RNZ. Yeah. Um, I was very conscious that I was doing a pretty decent job of my job for not that much money, which didn't really incentivize them to move me elsewhere because then they would have had to have found someone else who could do mm. what I did for that much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, again, they've they've got a little more money now, but at the time money was everything. Yeah, this yeah. was in the time of the funding freezes. Yeah. And, um, so it was really, it was hard to develop and there were people who had been there for decades in the same jobs and I wasn't sure if I really wanted that. And at the time I was looking around the New Zealand journalism market and thinking, well, what else would I want to do? Again, that's that's kind of changed now. You have this like amazing editor from the Washington Post coming back mm. to edit the Dom Post, which is really exciting, yeah, and everything yeah. Sinead Bouch is doing. And yeah. there are people at every outlet in New Zealand doing really cool stuff. Um, and there are opportunities. But at the time, I just couldn't really see much. Um, and I was also quite burned out. Like, I'd been going pretty hard since mm. I was quite young. Mm. Um, and I'd been going, I know it sounds stupid because I was a child, but I'd been going pretty hard for yeah, a while yeah. before that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like, I wasn't a breaks person, I wasn't a... Um, and I'd also just had, like, a weird few years in my life, like, like good things had happened, bad things, like, I'd, I'd lost, like, three friends in the space of 18 months, just in really, like, weird, shitty ways. Um, I got bacterial meningitis and wound up in hospital, like, just insane stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and had um, had also, like, got a Creative New Zealand grant to go to the Edinburgh festivals and report on them and just really saw people um, actually just exploring their creativity in a way that I was like, I'm not going to run away to do a one-woman show or anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> mainly because they don't have the talent. But, um, but it just led to me kind of questioning stuff and I was feeling pretty burned out. There were some stories that had been hard. Like I remember around that time there was um, like the so-called Roastbusters story was oh, just yeah, really, yeah. It, like it took a pretty big toll. Yeah. Um, Gosh, it took enough of a toll fucking following that on the yeah, news. So yeah. I can only imagine, like yeah. it was horrific. Um, yeah. And, and we continues were to be. talking to young women yes. about whether they should speak up and that mm. kind of thing. Um, and it was, a, it was a different climate then for those mm. stories as well. Mm. So I'd kind of got to a point where I just kind of, I just was done. So which was weird because I loved my job and worked with these amazing women and was learning mm. a lot. But I just was like, oh, I just I'm just I'm like 27 or 28. And I'm just exhausted. 
Mm. Um, also, we would start work quite early, so I think it was partly that. Um, and you're always... I mean, a lot of people are like this, but yeah. when you're hounding the news, which is what any kind yeah. of journalism... You don't feel like you just can't read it at the weekend. No. That's not an option. But at the same time you're alert to the possibility that your phone's going to go off, mm. even if it doesn't, yeah. and that your email's going to be mm. bad news or yeah, work news, yeah. or which is both. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you're, you're, you're never off. Yeah. Um, and so I actually just kind of started applying for jobs outside of journalism. Um, I went to work for a charity for a year, and I knew after, I would say, like three months... That I was going back to journalism. I, I was really fun. I actually had a great year, and I learned how many journalism skills were transferable to mm. um, the outside world. Mm. Like I helped run a youth festival, I had like five hundred young people come to it, and it was just like producing a radio show. Problems would crop up. Mm. You would just very quickly think of the best solution and take the initiative and do it. Yeah. And that's just what producing a radio show is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was great because I had kind of felt like, oh my gosh, I went to journalism school before the global financial crisis. <laughs> and now I've worked at RNZ and people were kind of looking at my CV and kind of going, okay, so you've worked at this one place, what else can you do? Yeah. Um, you're like, well, actually, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but it was so it was great to see that I did actually have marketable skills, which I was starting to get a bit kind of defeatist yeah, about Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, so I'd committed to a year at this place and I did a year... Um, but towards the end, I was thinking, how do I go back to journalism? But how do I go back to it in a way where I don't just plonk myself back into the same situation that wasn't making me yeah, super yeah. happy? Yeah, burn, burn out um, the sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So weirdly, I decided to do a master's, which, like, it kind of worked out. But, you know, people always say that postgraduate study is not for when you don't know what to do with your life. Like, you mm, should have more, mm, mm. there should be more to it than that. But I think I thought... Um, my undergrad degree had been really vocational. Um, it hadn't been very academic. I always really liked the academic components. And I wanted to explore journalism in a bit of a different way um, and try and figure out whether I could have a career on my own terms doing things a bit differently. So I did my master's. Um, and towards the end of my thesis, um, applied for this Asian New Zealand they have these kind of journalism placements around Asia where they pay mm. for you to go and basically work slash observe in a newsroom for three months. And I um, landed this one at the New York Times in Hong Kong. And, yeah, basically things just went really well and by the time it was time to come back to New Zealand, they had said, like, here's a freelance contract it really helped that I wasn't cutting anyone else's grass because yeah, yeah. so little had been happening in New Zealand yeah. that the previous freelancer had moved to London like six months earlier yeah, yeah. and they actually hadn't even noticed. I was going to say the so. previous New York Times correspondent was probably one of the top twins or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so things had just, um, yeah, things in, in Hong Kong, again, I got really lucky and also just was, it was the right time and, um, for example, Jacinda Ardern became the leader of the Labour Party while I was there. Yeah. And it was suddenly one of the few stories in the world that it was easier for them to get me to do it, or let me do it, mm. than it was to get one of the incredibly talented New York Times correspondents in that yeah, office yeah. to do. Because they actually did know the players. And yeah, yeah. Whereas 99% of stories in the world, it was like, well, 
why would they let me, someone who was there for three yeah, months yeah. and they weren't even paying, yeah. do a story. Um, so basically I, I managed to prove myself with a few stories and um, was lucky to get an incredible editor there who um, really invested again in teaching me how to write a New York Times style. I'd never written a newspaper story before. <laughs> My first ever newspaper story was in the New York That's Times. That's amazing. So, I'm sure you can imagine the draft was like, it was a little weird. That's amazing. I mean, that's like sort of plot of a dubious rom com. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't or it's it? kind of like, like your first. <laughs> like that, you know, like not to trivialise what you've done, but that's how it would be yeah, represented. Totally. Yeah. And, it's, and so it seems so absurd. That's or it's amazing. It's like the first time yeah. you ever tried doing a vault is at the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a massive spinal injury. Yeah. Um, it was a bit like that. Um, <laughs> So, but I am someone who responds well to, like, I'm one of those people you tell something once to, yeah. and you won't have to tell me again. And I think that this editor picked up on that much as I'm sure it was very painful for him initially. Um, and I did learn, like, it was a very humbling experience to suddenly be, and I don't just say this because this is the kind of thing I say, but to suddenly be the worst one yeah, there yeah, was yeah. very humbling. Um, but at the same time, it was quite affirming to me that I actually did know how to do reporting. I knew how to go out and get a story. And I didn't necessarily know how to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I did, yeah, the, good reporting is good reporting. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, I guess I realised that that was actually something I knew how to do. So, um, yeah, so came back. Um, initially took a part-time job back at RNZ um, because I thought... I'm not sure how much the New York Times is actually going to use me in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, very quickly, jug juggling the two things became more and more difficult, but because I'm very risk-averse, I kind of kept doing it for as long as I could, and after eight months, I I quit the part-time job at RNZ to just do the freelancing thing for the New York Times full-time. Um, I did that for a couple of years, and then, um, and then, yeah, got a contract with The Guardian late last year. Um, how? Uh, they were about to expand their New Zealand coverage. Um, this had been kind of a long planned mm -hmm. thing because there's a lot of interest, I think, both from here in The Guardian and from the rest of the world in New Zealand. Um, and so I think they initially asked me if I'd be interested in doing a freelance like a freelance story yeah. for them yeah. so, or the odd freelance story um, because they knew that I did the New York Times stuff as well so I did one freelance story and they called me that afternoon and said would you be interested in um, if we gave you kind of a contract doing that mm, mm. Um, it was real. it was one, one of those things that just doesn't really happen and I yeah. was lucky I think probably um I guess because framing New Zealand news for an international audience yes. is a specific skill. Definitely a learnable one yeah, because yeah. I had to learn it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but because they would already have had like about a hundred or so New York Times stories to look through to see that I could do that. And then I guess maybe the last confirmation is, and I've never talked to them about this, so I don't know, but the last confirmation is wanting to know what your copy looks like before an editor gets in it. Right, so maybe right. they just wanted to check if I could actually write or if I had yeah. just um, the 
fabled New York Times editing system was what was yeah, yeah. writing my stories. <laughs> because you do, they, you have every story is edited twice Gosh, by two different people. And you would second guess that going through that process a little. Like, you, that, that would make you go, like, a little bit, like, yeah. you know, I uh, feel like I'm doing good work. Now it's someone else's turn to decide whether I am or not, yeah. basically. Every single Which is time. also very good, right? Like, it's a good, yeah. but it'd be a scary feeling at first, as it always is. I mean, I remember, you know, you know, I've done some hackneyed stuff for some total hacks of people, but you still freak out the first time you do it because it's a new, per- new pair of eyes and a new yes. person deciding. And I've, you live and die by whether the editor of a organisation basically digs your stuff yeah essentially right like for all the you know for all the skills you have to have and for how good you become if someone for whatever reason doesn't dig what you do you're gone yeah i was so conscious of that i remember the first new york times story i filed in hong kong and i didn't even know if they were just humoring me or not because again i was very me about it and that i could see a couple of people who'd been on this placement before had said to me look you probably won't get to write stories but just um you know like enjoy mm. hong kong make connections yeah. and i kind of went oh that's not it's not really my, <laughs> my way yeah yeah um and so i could see they were all so busy there it's like an editing hub they're editing stuff from all over kind of the asia pacific region the middle east and that kind of thing australia um and the journalists there were all really senior and they pretty much worked on their own thing. There was no meeting in the morning where the stories got divvied out to each person like there had been at Radio New Zealand. So I'd kind of gone thinking, I'll just put my hand up to do stories, but that wasn't really how it worked. So I very nervously emailed an editor because it was so quiet in the room that I didn't want to humiliate myself in front of everyone and said, can I please pitch you some stories? (laughs) And so the next day, um, yeah, we went into a room with a door and I said oh you know like I was walking around Hong Kong my first weekend here and I noticed this and um, I could do a story on that and pitched him like about three things and two of them he said yeah like go work on those and tell me when you're done Um, and I wasn't sure if he was just humoring me so I would stop Mm, asking mm, him mm, for work mm. so the first one of those that I filed um, I remember I was talking to actually weirdly was emailing with Steve Braunius about a book review that I'd filed for the spin-off and so I said to him, like, I've just filed my first New York Times story. Like, I feel like I'm going to be sick. Like, I had to leave the building and go for a walk around the block because mm. I couldn't bear to think of this editor reading it in the same room that I wanted. Totally, you know, totally. Um, and at some point he called me over and said, oh, I have photos been commissioned for this yet. And I said, I, th- I thought that was a bit <laughs> presumptuous. <laughs> and he kind of laughed a little bit and said, you can go get mm. photos commissioned. Um, but yeah, definitely that, so that feeling lessened a bit, it was never quite that bad again, Mm-mm. but you never entirely lose it, eh? You never entirely lose the fact oh, look, that perhaps what I've just filed is, is a garbage. steaming garbage turd that is going to make this person whose approval I desperately want. Well, look, like, I want to, I, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to equate our journeys at all. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, no, be, I'm barely fit. Totally I'm, I'm barely fit to open the door for you at a red no, carpet. No, but, but. Steve Braunius is the most freaked out I've ever been by the idea that someone's reading my stuff and deciding whether it goes in or not. Oh, totally. Like, I've had that experience as well that I um, I remember he gave me quite a, not even a scathing, but 
quite a funny <laughs> piece of critique once yeah. that has just gone... Like, he said that this book review I wrote was like a flying nun song, that there was a riff that repeated over and over <laughs> And it didn't exactly go anywhere, but it was kind of enjoyable. Um, That's actually brilliant, though, too, isn't it? Like, that is as cutting as that is. And it's stuck in my head, yeah. and it made me want to do gonna, better. I was just going to say, that's going to be uh, instructive, informative, yeah. but it's it's a common complaint mm. of both Flying Nun songs and... And, and I love Flying and, Nun. Yeah, same, yeah. same. But it's, ac- it's a really accurate, vivid... Yeah correct kind of thing yeah. to say to someone actually but I, so did, I don't think it matters yeah. who the editor is or no, what level they're at no. if it's someone who whose editorial opinion you respect that, that's it it's like i've read his work for years and i don't agree with uh um, i shouldn't say that because people say that all the time about me and i hate that kind of thing that you're supposed to qualify that you i may not agree rah 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 mm. but anyway i've I, I think he's a fantastic writer and clearly a good editor because he's commissioned a lot of great pieces and 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 obviously done some work on them and when i did a book review for him a couple of years ago it was it was definitely the most nervous i've been about hearing back about anything and i i passed with flying colors but i didn't know that until until and i had to read his email twice that basically said this is all clear copy it's just going to run kind of thing and i was like hang on where's the real where's the cutting dig like my where's the april fools element you know or whatever like at the end of it but no nah, yeah my first ever kind of online or my i think my first ever kind of paid piece of writing was yes. for the spin-off yeah so it was not that long before i i went to hong kong yeah but i'd never written anything for print before the new york times um, and it was a book review for the spin-off. And again, I came to it with this this pitch, like the Harry Potter play script book was yeah, coming yeah, out. And yeah. it was like, here are my qualifications to do this review. <laughs> <laughs> Just fucking unbearable. Um, but, and I think he probably thought it was quite funny. Funny. <laughs> and so I wrote this very, like, took it extremely seriously. Mm. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever gotten paid for writing as opposed to radio. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that was, so I think, yeah, with editors, it's like that. I, I still have editors like that, that I file to and think, I, oh my God, I know exactly they reply. What I know exactly what you're talking about. Like the first couple of times I produced stories for RNZ. I knew that it was going to go well, but when the guest came in and was welcomed and put in the room and then the story happened, that was when I went and got my lunch. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm not I'm not sitting around and listening to this. I just can't. I'll listen to it later on headphones. I just can't be here when that's happening. And, and another thing you said um, resonated with me about that is just that 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 back end thing of radio is like i've done a lot of talking on radio i've presented a lot of um you know i guess stories features about music that 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 i've dreamed up or that i've been asked to talk about and sure i don't hate them i enjoy doing them and i may even be proud of a couple of them but i've never been more proud than the work i've done producing stuff which no one knows Mm. yeah yeah you know like i've i've pre-interviewed and selected and scripted long feature interviews with people about stuff and I think they're great Mm. but I would never say oh by the way that you just wouldn't do it anyway Mm. but you wouldn't go oh that piece of radio that you you all heard and loved 
that was my idea yeah. or I worked on you know just no one does that right it doesn't that's happen that's a very that's, New Zealand thing though yeah right? yeah I know in the states or other places sometimes they do say who produced well they do story. yeah and you look at those um, exactly you look at those podcasts that come out of the radio stations in America and it's yeah. always like this was produced by this by these was, 15 people this was engineered by that's right like, how do yeah, you have so much everyone, everyone gets the credit yeah. the soundtrack was by yeah which um, is and great I think that's yeah, quite yeah. cool yeah um, for sure because it meant because I was at RNZ before not before the website because the website was mm. there by the time mm. I left but certainly before even reporter bylines went on story yeah, so yeah. when your story went online it didn't have your name no, on yeah, yeah. so I left with no portfolio yeah. of nine years of work I could I could say this interview was me, I produced that, but I had mm, no proof, proof of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's nice now to have some, to have a portfolio of work, although it is hard to have an off day. <laughs> well, <laughs> when it has your name yes. like on it and it's going yeah. in the New York Times or whatever. Yeah. And I think a lot, uh, this, I'm, this definitely isn't a poor me thing because it's an immense privilege, but mm. I think people don't always think about that. Like, what if every single piece of work you ever did at your office was published on the internet with your name on it? Yeah, 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 totally. How would that change your psychological approach to your job? Yeah. Um, the, the, the the short answer um, to that is that you've signed up for it. Oh, absolutely. But, but you're and abs- I quite agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but you're absolutely right as well. Like, And this was this thing that came into play, I think, a bit recently with the the defensive reporters at the press conferences around mm. COVID, the argument that like you're on, you know, what if what if you were on display mm. at work and people were watching essentially the mm. the background stuff and the inner workings because everyone asks questions in different ways yeah, totally. and they're trying to get, uh, you know, and the reason they might repeat the question is to catch the person out. To, yeah, get them, yeah. to get them to say something different. And so then all us armchair experts became very vocal because we were suddenly tuning into it more and it affected us more than, mm. you know, mm. in theory it affected us more than a lot of other press conferences. We were suddenly far more yeah. hair trigger around. Mm. But that was the defence that came up, which was, you know, how would you feel? And the, the easy answer is, well, you did sign up for that. Yeah. that is and a- I never quite got that argument no. so much. I didn't... I I could see little bits of everyone's perspective on that. Mm, same. Um, and I think the, the how would you feel about having your work scrutinised thing was, was yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Um, but I do think quite often people don't realise especially with politicians who are very good communicators, how frequently you think on a surface level that they've answered the question and they actually haven't. Mm -hmm. And one thing that press gallery reporters, of which I'm not one, like I have a press gallery swipe card and I go when I need to, but I'm a general reporter. So this isn't my defense of press gallery reporters, um, is that they have to get extremely good at hearing when a question hasn't entirely been answered. Mm. And so Sometimes when they repeat questions, and I didn't quite see this getting discussed enough, people were saying, oh, you know, sometimes TV needs it for another angle or whatever. I'm like, I don't care, I'm not a TV journalist. Um, But I do think quite often people thought questions had been answered when they actually hadn't. And I've had the horrible experience, it's just excruciating, of getting back and transcribing your dictaphone file from an interview with a politician and thinking that you'd done a really good job of the interview and then transcribing it and being like, fuck, they didn't answer, answer a single question and I didn't adequately pick yeah. up on it. Yeah. Um, so it's a real skill to be attuned to that. And I think quite often that was the case. I also think, and again, I'm not disparaging anyone because I think everyone 
was in this place including the journalists but people were in a place where they did feel defensive everyone yeah and they were also in a place where they could not tolerate the official response being questioned at times because that felt scary right it felt like mm. it seemed like the authorities had things together and people really wanted to believe that that was the case mm. And a lot of people just felt like, well, why can't we just let the Prime Minister get on with doing it? Why does she have to come sit with you clowns every day and, you know, yeah. be be condescended to by, all, you yeah, know, yeah. have all these journalists be rude to her? And I think, um, I hate to be like, oh, democracy, but it is actually really important. And yeah. I think she understood that. I think Ashley Bloomfield really understood that. Mm. And in fact, had I didn't personally witness this, but made comments to journalists that I knew who had had a hard time. Um, indicating that he understood that they would had been doing their jobs. Mm. Um, and so I think in that room, there's a lot of rough and tumble. There's not normally hurt feelings. Mm, like, mm, it's not mm. that politicians are going away from those press conferences thinking, yeah, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think sometimes sometimes there are, I'm not discrediting that at all, that there are politicians who have been tremendously hurt by mm. media actions and that kind of thing. But um, not Jacinda Ardern when she's giving her daily COVID briefing. Mm. Um, so I think there were a lot of dynamics at play um i also think i mean i think about criticism of journalists a lot partly because that was kind of kind of what my masters was about yeah i was just going to i want to talk about that with right. you and i was just going to say i was going to jump in and say did what we're talking about now um would have brought up some interesting mm. stuff around your thesis because you know there's well the the tv reporter um, component of the press gallery uh, seems to me to be predominantly female. Mm. And so there was a lot of, uh, for all the criticism and some of it valid, there was a lot of gendered abuse, right? There yeah, was a yeah, lot totally. of really simple, lazy, yeah. nasty yeah. Um, slinging. Mm. And people think that calling someone a bitch is the extent yeah. of it, but quite often it goes a lot deeper than that. Or, so. or choosing to say a jumped up, little princess or whatever yeah, exactly. they don't actually think that's um sexist or yeah. something like, yeah. like you know so there were yeah. there were a couple of things on that and a couple yeah. of times i went to do kind of like a 29 tweet thread and then was like yeah, oh fuck yeah. it i got other things to do with my life <laughs> and also that I, like it's kind of funny but it's kind of the fact that do i have two days to yeah. be trolled on the internet yeah no, for free on my yeah. own time as a hobby no yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so i just kind of kept it to myself but um, so my thesis was about the gendered online harassment of women journalists. And one of the things, um, my supervisor was a woman, and she, um, I was kind of keen to not actually kind of go through and, and read message and code messages from, mm. you know, trolls or whatever, because yeah. I was like, I kind of care about the women, I don't really care about the yeah, trolls. Yeah. Um, but my supervisor, a woman, pointed out that if I did not quantify it, there would be people who said that I was writing about a phenomenon that did not exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think she was smart. It's very stupid that that's the case. But um, so I went out first mathematically and, and proved through comparative analysis that it was a thing. Um, but how we actually figured out how to code what gendered language was, was quite interesting. Um, and sometimes you felt strongly that something was getting leveled at a woman because she was a woman, but you actually couldn't find a way to prove it. So you couldn't, because you can't kind of interrogate the people who sent these text messages or whatever. So 
sometimes things didn't get coded as gendered language when I felt pretty sure that they were. Um, and so, and, and even then, it still showed that there was a stark difference in the feedback given to a male and a female hosting yeah. the same show. Yeah. Um, but certainly there were things, when I was at RNZ and I sometimes did presenting stuff just as a fill-in host, um, that I thought were really normal. Like, I thought it was really normal to every time I hosted a show get at least one, if not more than one, um, complaint about my voice. Um, that it was unusually bad. Um, or unusually annoying, um, and I think I kind of internalized some of that where I thought I did have a bad annoying voice, um, and that I was on air despite that, despite everyone mm. having to tolerate my voice, you know, um, and then one day a male producer was hosting and kind of said afterwards, like, what the fuck was that? Like, I've never seen that kind of feedback before in my life. Um, and I was like, oh, I get that every show. <laughs> 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 um, and he had worked, he'd been like a host at the BBC or something before he came to New Zealand and was just like, I've never seen that. Um, but other, the more I talked to women, the more I found that other women journalists. And I used to keep it to myself when I was really young. Like when I was, I remember the first really horrible thing that got, that I stumbled across in the comments to an unrelated story on stuff or something that was said about me that was, again, very gendered. Um, and I was 20 and I was a nobody. Like, I, yeah. part of me was kind of like, how does this person even know who I am? Like, I did packages on Morning Report because I was a reporter. So I'd be on Morning Report for, like, three minutes. Yeah. Maybe every day or every second day, yeah. you know. Um, how does this person hate me that much when they haven't even been subjected to that? <laughs> and so it was really like, I really internalised and it was really shameful for me for a long time and I kind of didn't want to talk to people about it because I thought, what if everyone thinks this about me and it's, <laughs> and then it's awkward if I kind of say, isn't this upsetting? Um, and then I just got really calloused about it and got to the point where I didn't really care that much. Um, and then, But then once I was a lot older and started talking to other women about it, um, women who were in a part of my research, like Susie Ferguson or Megan Whelan, mm. or just um, incredible people, um, found that we were all... Incredible kind of, people with incredible ways of dealing yeah, with the yeah. shit they shouldn't have to deal yeah, with totally. as well, right? And it is, I mean, it is an extra tax on yeah, your job for and sure. your emotions and your life that men doing the same job do not have to pay that tax. It is, unless, unless of course, they're like Maori men or, you know, men of colour and then mm. they get it just as bad. But, um, and, and women of colour get it way, way worse than I've mm. ever experienced. Um, so, yeah, so I proved that it was a thing, did my masters on it. And so I think one of the things that's often missing from those conversations, because then there were a lot, there was a lot of discourse, right, around the COVID time, around whether, you know, journalists could take criticism or whatever. And there mm. were even some of my, um, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, some of my white male journalist peers who were going off on these big kind of, philosophical threads about how journalists needed to learn to take it better because this was this was you know about a big philosophical debate about the future of journalism you know mm -hmm. um was whether we could adapt to feedback and i think there is some element of truth to that but i think that none of them even noticed that it was only them having this discussion publicly like women weren't getting involved and I think for a lot of those men it was their first rodeo of really being abused yeah yeah and it's like oh i get that i mean I had to go to the police about something that I got when I wrote a story about museums. You know, this is mm. just this is just part of the job for us. Mm. And so 
I think a lot of the time people were explaining away criticism as, you know, important, you know, valid about the future of journalism, when a lot of it was actually just abuse because people yeah. were coped up and feeling like they wanted to lash out. Um, so it was, I again, could see everyone's perspective, but I think there was a tranche of the discussion missing where sometimes things are gendered when even the person saying it doesn't know that it is. Yeah, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? That people don't actually, you know, this is um, mildly related, but like um, I did a Facebook post when the, basically when Collins was announced as leader and I put up a photo of um, her and Jerry Brownlee and the just I wrote a big long thing and I wanted to do it as a Facebook post. I thought about doing it as a, a piece on my website and actually writing an article. And then I thought, no, I'm just going to do this as a, a Facebook hit. And I just, the tone of it was basically like, you know, whatever madness comes out of their mouths, um, it, you know, don't resort to calling him fat and her ugly. Like, by all means, call them on their madness if that's what you believe in. But... But and I don't often do preachy things like that, but it was just something I wanted to say, and it got the only reason I'm bringing it up is because it got a massive amount of likes, shares, comments, mm -hmm. rah, rah, rah. But looking in it, m several of the people that supported it, I was, I was like, a day ago you just called Jerry Brownlee a fat fucking blunt. Mm -hmm. A day ago you just called Judith Collins an ugly, you know, troll, and you'd put up a cartoon photo of her with Joker eyebrows and a day later you're going to do it again but here mm. you are going and you've even written here here good you know great yeah. post and I so I don't know the answer there but I do, or what I'm but what I'm trying to get at is I, I honestly believe in some cases I know actually know these people and they're good people essentially and so they almost don't even know they're doing it now that's yeah, and that's kind of, I guess, at the safe end of the spectrum, well, but it's still think hurtful. That they're protecting their politics, yes. or yeah. their political viewpoints, or they think that it's okay in the crusade for just trying to get journalists to be better. Yeah, but I feel like no journalist is going to go, "Oh shit, I really need to do better." From someone calling mm. them a dumb c-word on mm. Twitter, mm. <laughs> um, and I think you do get to a point where. I have to kind of coach myself a lot to not feel defensive about legitimate criticism because I get stuff that would make people's eyes pop out, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so when you get to a point where you see an email address in your inbox that you don't know and the subject line is a little chaotic, <laughs> you're like... <laughs> oh, I thought you I thought you were going to say you get an email from someone and the subject line is, would you like to come around for a podcast? <laughs> I was like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> We have, we have mutual friends, so yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. But like, and I know, yeah. Um, but definitely there there are, yeah, there are some emails you get that people think are nice that you're like, oh, yeah. you're yeah. disgusting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I did, against my will, did like an ABC TV thing that I thought was radio during lockdown. And then they said, oh, now can you turn your camera off? And I was in my pyjamas and I'd just been yeah. out for a run in the rain and so my Cold cabin, pizza next to you. Yeah, yeah, pretty <laughs> yeah. much. So I had to be like, give me 15 minutes. Um, and I don't do TV partly because I can't handle the apparent stuff. I just can't. Like, can't handle the the idea of the reaction to it, you mean? Yeah, you're, I mean, You're safeguarding yourself, also, understandably. Also, like, I my face in weird ways. And, like, I know I could learn. Okay. Um, but, yeah, yeah. But, but you didn't get into it for that. You're not a... Yeah. A, you're not, and I, and yeah. the people who can do it, I am... In, of. Like, I went to broadcasting school with Jack Tame, mm. and that is 
such a skill what he does and the way that he can ask he's a questions fucking beast, man. He's while, so good. while keeping his face even it's just i i don't i know you can learn it but i don't yeah. know if i could he's extraordinary um, though isn't he like yeah. i fell into the trap a few years ago of um yeah, you know, I heard him on radio, saw him on TV a couple of times, and I maybe I wasn't fully paying attention. And when I say a couple of years ago, it was a little bit longer than that. Mm. So, so he was pretty young to be doing the things mm. he was doing, which is super impressive. But yeah. instead of thinking that, I fell into the trap of going, "Why have they put all the eggs in one basket with this dude? What's mm, that about?" Mm. And then it's like you actually watch the work and go, "Yeah, he's fucking great. Yeah, <laughs> he's super he's, good. He's, that's 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 why someone thought that way back then yeah. and started getting him to." front as many things as they could on radio and TV at a young age because yeah. he's fucking extraordinary. Yeah, and he's got Let's you know, celebrate a that, few like, times in a generation yeah, of talent, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't do it partly because it's a skill that I haven't learned um, mm. and I didn't enjoy seeing myself on TV when I did that component of my, of my kind yeah, of yeah, degree. Yeah. Um, but also I know what my female friends in TV get yeah. and... I just don't know that I'm resilient it. enough. Yeah. I got like I got bullied heaps of my appearance when I was young, you know, like a lot. And I've got to the point now where I don't care. Like my face is my face. I don't have to like it. I you know, I don't have mm-hmm. to dislike it. It's just mm-hmm. my face, you know. And I'm really lucky and privileged that I've got to a point in my career at least to this point where it doesn't matter what I look like because yeah. I'm a newspaper reporter. Yeah, yeah. Um Oh, we, yeah. I would hate to put myself in a situation where suddenly people were... And because people do go and find photos of me and, and, and oh, you yeah, know, comment yeah, on my appearance, yeah. but it is more difficult for them to do that than yeah, yeah. if I was on TV every night. Yeah. Oh, look, I had, you know, if, for me, I, I, I spent a long time, you know, my profile picture on Facebook is almost never a picture of me. Yeah. I uh, and I know I'm not alone in that, and I do that for a bunch of reasons because I like to alternate it and, and share different things that I'm into and stuff. But I also do it because I had years of just getting abused because my photo was on stuff for nine years, mm-hmm. writing a blog, and I just got abuse because yeah. it was just a thing people could could like you know like what do they think? We've never seen our own faces. We don't yeah. know what we look like, so they think they've whatever they can sort of glom onto to to try and use against you. In a, in a battle of lowest wits, and you just sort of have to let them do it, which I've always been fine with. But mm. why would you then, you know, present extra opportunity mm. for it? Yeah. yeah. So, so, and that's me who doesn't get anywhere near the abuse you're talking about. I actually had my Twitter profile picture for a long time, like maybe a couple of years, was of me as a toddler because I was like, say mm. it to a baby, assholes. And mm. it actually did help, I think. I think I got less. Yeah, well, when I do share a the funny thing is, when I share a picture of me and my son or whatever or something, actually people, because, you know, maybe it gets grabbed Maybe it gets grabbed by someone and they want to use it one day when mm. I when I next say their favourite album's no good or whatever. But but actually, in terms of the community that is on my page, they're really into it, mm, mm, yeah. which is cool. But that's after years of sort of essentially hiding from it and going, well, I won't, I won't give them that. Mm. You know, I I I remember saying when I had to go in and actually get. You know, I think you would actually call it a photo shoot, weirdly enough, for my photo for blog on the tracks, and they did it twice. They updated it after a while, and the original one they they did was the original one was they had me on the studio floor lying on the ground with record covers around me, 
So my head was just, and just for a headshot, but the idea was that my head was going to be swimming in amongst these record mm. covers. And it was just ridiculous. But, but, um, why yeah. is it that? Because I'm the same. Whenever I have to get a professional photo taken for something, it's just it's just like a traumatic, horrible experience. Oh. And then you see the end product and you think, oh. It hasn't happened much for me, but yeah, totally. Like I did this. Um, but anyway, I just remember saying like, why does it have to be a photo of me? Oh no, it has to be rah, 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 this, 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 which, mm. which was fine and I lived with it. But I remember getting um, interviewed for The Listener when my book came out whenever that was, 2011-12, and um, the, they said, oh, we need you to be available for a photo shoot. So I left work, and the photo shoot, I think, took longer than the interview. Like, it, it took an hour and a half, and I know there's a process, but the photo they chose, I don't care about, but it was one of the first ones he took. We went to four other locations, and it was like, surely you could have flicked through your viewfindery thing and gone, that'll do. But then that's how I would <laughs> I would do it, and not a professional. But I just remember thinking, "Fuck, we we spent all that time just for that." Yeah. yeah. So, and I've had very limited time with that with that sort of stuff. But yeah, it is weird. Mm. It's a weird it's a weird thing, right? It's just a, a weird thing that why would you want to sign up for that if you didn't have to? Yes, and I think yeah to go. I mean to go back to the Twitter thing. I do think it's important that people can. Um, critique the media because the media do have a lot of power yeah. so I totally don't want what I said to be taken like that but I just think it's curious that people think that their politics need defending to a degree of yes. abusing people yeah and that, like, that, and that that's okay because the greater goal I'm getting yeah. at is abusing the politics so I'm just gonna yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna chuck a couple of body hits in because it's like me warming up and it's like yeah, nah totally. that doesn't actually get to fly but also left or right wing politics is actually going to survive <laughs> It's gonna be okay. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, by by, this person asking the prime minister a question you thought was stupid, it's actually not going to make that much difference in the long run. Although, I mean, yeah, it's. But it's interesting. I don't. I don't want to do a like. Uh, I just want to use an experience that happened to me because I can speak mm. about it. But but um, I'd be interested in your take on this, I guess. But uh, so I I criticised Tover O'Brien for a thing she said and and, and 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 you know she blocked me and stuff which is fine and then I sort of shared that as an idea of like it's interesting that she can ask whatever question she wants but when a person challenges her on it the, the answer is to block I'm fine with being blocked but like isn't there something slightly hypocritical about that and people basically went at me with lots of people were like yeah totally and then lots of people really went at her which I didn't like because they went at her for you know all the reasons we were just talking about mm. but then um, part of the outcome was like you did that because she's a woman and you wanted to feel strong ripping her down and it was kind of like you end up uh, basically, I really regret sharing it. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I, essentially, I, I don't. It, I don't regret saying what I said to her, hmm. but I do regret sharing it because there's no way. You know, you drive yourself crazy going, no, no, no. I've actually hmm. challenged men in the same position on this, and hmm. next thing you've got to go back and get your proof and all. You know, yeah. fuck. It's that. super fraught. I think yeah. it's. I think it's. I think it's nice that you've been reflexive about it, and because I do think that the weaponizing of blocking has become a real problem because we do people do tell you if you're getting abuse or or you're you're finding something really upsetting then mm. just 
block them. Yeah, yeah. Like, why don't you just block yeah, them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then when you... And, and I'm now really scared to block people because if you block that people... The story. They then screenshot yes. you having blocked them. Yeah, and yeah, then... Yeah, yeah. And so, first of all, and I'm sure this Which is... Which is exactly what, what I did. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure <laughs> that this wasn't what you were doing, but there is a sense sometimes, and it doesn't sound like this is mm. what you were doing, that you feel like this... Um, person thinks you owe them engagement or yeah, you owe yeah. them a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think sometimes as well, and I can't speak to how the other party was feeling in this situation, but sometimes you do respond badly because it's the last straw. It's, mm, it's mm. number 200 of oh, that day or totally. something. And so sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely go back and I think, yeah. and I try not to snap at people for that reason because I do have to remember that I do have a platform of privilege and they don't necessarily. And I do have access to a lot of people and can ask questions of people and all that kind of stuff, and it is a privilege. Um, so I try not to kind of do the smackdown on people yeah, who, yeah, who, yeah. Do, who are just being rude or whatever. And occasionally I pick one and make an example of it, especially if it feels particularly sexist. There was one actually a little while ago that, um, that I had done a joking tweet, and a bunch of people, one of whom is... A verified account journalist for a mainstream media outlet, and they were all men, um, had made jokes about it was clearly a non-sexual tweet, mm. and they'd made jokes about my sex life with my husband from wow. this tweet. Yeah. And I just felt so so yuck about it. Yeah. Because it's like, are you not being taken seriously as a person at that point? And it clearly and then you kind of think do people think that that was what I meant with that tweet but it clearly wasn't it you know it's like I've already spent more time on, mm. the, on this than you know yeah. um, and so that night I thought do I say hey this is super weird that this is what you would turn it into especially the person doing this from their verified work account um, and then I thought, went through the whole do I have two days of time yeah, yeah, drained yeah. to spend on this yeah. um, and then the next morning I was still mad and I thought about doing it again and in the end I never did it. But occasionally I do. Occasionally I do. I recently said to someone, like, this is kind of a weird level of projection or whatever. And then, of course, they were very defensive about why they'd said what they'd said. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you do feel... Again, I'm not saying that journalists couldn't do better with it because most of us absolutely could, myself included. Um, but you do feel like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Oh, totally. If you engage with the yeah, person, if yeah. you block the person, if you ignore, because then sometimes you get, um, well, you're if ignoring you... criticism, when you just go, I'm done with Twitter for the day, I'm just going to walk People away People want it. to have the, the narrative they want to have, yeah. and they, they, they don't want you shaping it for them through through your work, or they certainly yeah. don't want to acknowledge that. So yeah. they might, you know, they might... You know, I've, I've been using this example recently because it's just it's just happened. But, you know, I got, I've had a lot of abuse over the years for not liking Lana Del Rey. And, uh -huh. and probably if I was to fully go back and look through that stuff, maybe some of the use of language, I totally have to cop for some of that. But essentially what I've been trying to get at is I don't see what's so special about this. Mm here are the examples I know of music that sounds like this that none of you have picked up on that I think's mm. every bit as good. That's sort of been the, and she, not that it 
maybe it doesn't matter to some people, but I remember when she had a failed career as someone else under her own name, and I didn't like that music, so I was interested in the whole recasting. That's what I was reacting to. That was my decision. And I sort of stand by that as an idea, but absolutely, maybe some of the languages... I mean, we're going back to 2011-12, so we all speak differently. completely allowed to not like stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I think it's it's really hard, and it's something I struggle with a lot, and that there are some parts of the... New Zealand media that I don't think are very good. Yeah. Um, but I also feel uncomfortable sometimes with publicly saying so. I mean, we just don't have... Twitter is not a good place for public disagreement no. quite often. Well, the best... And I don't want to... I don't want to write it off because then I also think that it's a way for people who often don't have platforms to have a platform. I think that's super important. Like, mm. I, I learned about um, Black Lives Matter and black politics, the... the earlier time around with Black Lives yeah. Matter in Ferguson, Missouri, yeah. just from silently consuming Twitter. Like yeah, that yeah. was how I learned from these mainly black women, something that would have been hard for me to learn otherwise. So yeah. there are there are great opportunities, but it's not a good place for I mean, public disagreement. The very best maxim I ever received relating to journalism was was from the late great Gary Ward from News Talk ZB mm-hmm. who said his motto in life was ne- never complain, never explain. Yeah. But Twitter has put a wrecking ball through that. Yes. And here someone will probably send me a message in a couple of weeks and go, I heard you mention Gary Ward. I hope you know he was a misogynist. You know, someone will jump in and they'll have one example of when he did that and they'll just decide that defines his whole... I'm not saying he was perfect. I'm just saying that's the advice he gave me and that was quite instructive. And so someone will find that angle on that and and that's interesting. So, like, I got abuse a couple of weeks ago for Lana Del Rey reviews I wrote in 2012 and so I just ignored it because I was like, man, this is a no-win situation. Mm. Oddly, at the same time, I was listening to her new stuff and really liking it and Mm. finally found a way in and the only way to deal with that I've found from experience is to either not write about it at all or because people don't want you to change or write about it with a full kind of mea culpa, Mm. not so much I was wrong, but just, hey... I never used to like this, and here's why, but this is why I like this. So mm. I did that, and the only comment underneath it was, pity she's a racist who glamorises violence. And, it's, and you know, it's kind of like, well, I don't know if that has anything to do with me enjoying this album. And if it yeah. does, if we're going to check people's receipts to that level you know where's the enjoyment in anything like and then I ended up going back to this person and basically saying you know I don't know um if I got any of that from listening to this album oh no no it's in her it's in her tweets and I was like yeah again I don't really think I followed her tweets to review her album Mm -hmm. you know like and and it was fine and we just sort of left it there but I just thought that's that's a very trivial story but that's a classic Twitter damned if you do damned if you don't like and I think uh, it's hard. That that whole debate's a whole other debate where it's mm. like there are a lot of people who have done very bad things that they've got away with because of their level of privilege and yes. face no consequences. Sure. And that's bad. Um, 
but yeah, the the way that it often plays out on Twitter is not helpful for anyone. I actually have just been doing um, interviews, sit-down interviews with the leaders of all the political mm. parties. Mm. Um, and yeah, because you stood me up to talk to Winston Peters. I did. And that's totally, you know, uh, that's totally well, fair, by the way. I was basically told the day <laughs> yes. beforehand that it was that time or never, yeah, and, yeah. and we'd been trying to organise something for months. I so. was thrilled to be stood up for one of the <laughs> long-serving icons of New Zealand politics. <laughs> Um, so, one of the things that really struck me about that, um, and I don't have, I really, and people accuse you of this all the time, but I actually don't have party political views. I find Mm-mm. party politics, a lot of it quite intolerable. Um, I quite often struggle to decide who to vote for, um, and I'm not, and some, I kind of joke that I, I'm kind of a good person to write about politics because... Yeah, yeah. I care about the principles, but like I really don't care about the parties or the politicians. Yeah, yeah. It's not my thing. Um, but I do have my my values and my principles that that will end up driving yeah. Yeah, yeah. who I vote for. Um, and I look a lot at policies and that kind of thing and making my decision. But um, even though there are some political leaders who I feel like there is a vast chasm between the principles that I have and the principles that they have, and I kind of wondered what on earth we would talk about or like how I would find that kind of humanity in them that I found so easy to find Mm. one or two of the other leaders Mm. um, from the moment you go into their office. But I've actually felt so lucky and just fortunate to have these sit downs with these people because in every single occasion we managed to have, not that I, you know, found the humanity in them or we found mm. common ground or whatever, because I think a couple of them we didn't really have yeah, any yeah. common ground. Um, but we managed to have a great political conversation, even where it was clear that our views were demonstrably yeah, yeah. different. Yeah. And we almost went to, we published, we published the profile of David Seymour last week. Mm. And I almost did... I almost tweeted about that, and then I thought, oh, I'm then going to have the rest of the day of people saying, you're, you're humanising a uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a good piece, but yeah, exactly. You're just going to have to deal with the... Yeah, so oh, so, I just oh thought, so you're friends now, and you're looking after him, and you're, you've made I mean, him sound like a human we, when he's we, actually... We may, are you aware that he did this? <laughs> we may well never speak to each other again, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not even saying that it was this kind of warm friendly interview it was just that we managed to have a political conversation that i could not have had with him in another context and again not to be like oh you know face-to-face conversations the only good ones because i think that's also bullshit but i just think wouldn't it be great if there was somehow more opportunity for people to engage in a long form one-on-one way Mm. with people who make laws and make decisions about their life because not that you would come to see their point of view, but that being able to break eggs in a slightly safer environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're just two people on an equal footing. And I know there's an audience because I'm recording on my dictaphone. But in a sense, there isn't an audience. Mm. Because I'm going to do 12 takes of this question to make sure I've actually got to the heart of what it is that you're saying. Um, and I just, I have felt, even though politics isn't my thing I just have felt so incredibly lucky to have those conversations Mm. and feel like 
I have been really educated as, as a citizen through having them um, and it's helped me think better about how I will vote and then just thought isn't it a shame that somehow <laughs> that can't be conveyed to a grander scale yeah, yeah, of yeah. people getting to do that oh totally but that's that's uh, that's all uh, content creators frustration with being yes. reduced to a pesky soundbite no matter what really is or in it? this case 1200 words which yeah. sounds like a lot but when no. you've talked for an hour yeah it's not, not a lot or in, or in one case two hours I just yeah. came home and went yeah, yeah. Um, no, and also, totally. yeah, it's it's a really interesting prospect. And so, yeah, I've really... I haven't even done... We haven't done Judith Collins and Jacinda Ardern yet, because we've, we've yeah, done... Yeah. Um, I, I profiled Simon Bridges, and then I profiled Todd Mullet. Um, but I've done... We've done everyone else. Um, and I think, yeah, it's been a great experience. I mean, the other thing is that you're writing them not only for a New Zealand audience, yes, for but a, for an international yeah, audience yeah. and for the smaller parties, yes. given the intricacies of the MMP system and the explanations of that has to come in the 1,200 words. Yeah, so you're fully um, introducing them. Yeah. And which as means, well as trying to contextualise yeah. and, you know, and, and background them and, yeah. and humanise them on whatever level. Yeah. That, that's a lot of um, skill and pressure to make that happen. Which means yeah. that there are some aspects of, you know, the conversation that David Seymour and I had about Young Act or the conversation that we had um, about charter schools based on our own mm. educational experiences or the conversation that I had with Winston Peters about China that didn't, that was a whole other kind of large piece that didn't, that fit. couldn't fit easily into 1200 words. Yeah. Um, and so what do you no do, ever. what do you, what do you do with your transcriptions and your types? Do you keep all that, like, for example, that stuff you're just talking about there, that you will end up with several different threads and even whole other stories that you can't use. Mm. Do you archive that for uh, potential, you know, use or, res you know, deep research on something? If it's something yeah. big like that, I yeah. will. Um, well, I don't even want to say big because I don't want to make it sound like those guys yeah, are more yeah. important than anyone else because they're fucking not and no. it would be better if they no, had but if there, that. But, but if there was a fall but from grace... Or if, if it was, there was a hard a... interview to get yeah, or they're a yeah, public figure, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas when I did the story, which I loved, by the way, of the um, the eel that had escaped the backyard pool mm. after 35 years and swam out to sea, um, I'm not going to keep my transcript of that no. interview necessarily. Yeah, yeah, that work is done. Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah that's yeah. over. But again, certainly with the um, the Christchurch terrorist attack interviews that I've done, um, there are there are times where I have had to go back to interviews very early on with people who I'm still talking to and, mm. and find details of what they had told me early on and sometimes go back and check with them that they still feel that way. Um because sometimes it's been many, many hours of conversations. It's partly a cultural thing, I think. It's um, in a lot of um, Middle Eastern cultures, for example, you don't just go around to someone's house, pull out the dictaphone mm. and start asking questions. It's yeah, like yeah. Usually they've prepared a meal <laughs> and, you know, you'll have that with their family. And so you think, well, while your three young children are here, clearly this isn't the time that we're going to talk about, um, mm -mm. you know, what, has happened to you since yeah, the 15th yeah, yeah. of March so I'm guessing you know we're just we're just yarning for now um and then eventually you know the kids will go to bed and there'll be coffee and then you know sometimes by this point it's like 10 11 o'clock at night and that's when you start the conversation mm. and then sometimes it might go for two or three hours um not because you have that many questions but just because it takes that long to have that conversation yeah, 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 yeah. um and so I have like there are there are individuals that I just have hours and hours and hours of of recordings, yeah, recordings yeah. and, and in, ca in some cases transcriptions of 
Yeah. Um, that I will hold on to for now because I don't know when that's done. That might be. Yeah, yeah. that might come back. Yeah. Um, now, you do your your dance on the page and you do your dancing between The Guardian and The New York Times and so forth, but are you a dancer still? I haven't in the last couple of years. Um, I have had really bad lower leg injuries that I think is partly trying to do kind of pre-professional level dancing, coming back to it in like your late 20s. <laughs> As a moonlighter. <laughs> and immediately throwing yourself into it like yeah. you never have been away. Um, so I stopped at the end of high school. I took 10 years off. I think part of me was quite angry that I'd devoted so much of my life to this thing that didn't quite want me to the same level that I wanted it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I now I kind of look back with little but gratitude although with some ongoing concerns about the industry but um there definitely were things that I learned as a very small child that still come into play in my work now in terms of work ethic and dedication and um and also kind of I know it doesn't hasn't sounded like this but a bit of an immunity to criticism like yeah yeah you think you can hurt my feelings like you know like i had a ballet teacher yelling at me that i was useless when i was eight you know like try yeah, harder yeah yeah bring um, it on yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. um yes oh, and it's no, and a cat thinks i was clapping <laughs> um but yeah so i i got back into it i had a 10 year break i was kind of feeling a bit unhappy and like there was something missing and that there was a way of being myself that i hadn't quite refound as an adult and a little bit of that came back through journalism that moment when you turn on the microphone and it's like it's all on me to mm. not choke and that's what stepping up on stage was like it's like this is the moment yeah yeah where that everything comes down to and i've always been performed well in those situations um but it didn't entirely cover it with journalism and so i think it had got to the point where my friend had said my friend goes to like a shooting range and shoots handguns and was like do you want to come learn to shoot handguns and I was like maybe it's that maybe that's gonna be my thing I'm gonna mm. be a handguns person um and then I looked up like how much a gun weighs and I was like <laughs> I think I would find like I'm a spaghetti yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I, yeah. and and then I someone uh, I read something about like the kickback and then someone saying you have to wear a high neck shirt so the shell, hot shell casings don't go down your shirt and I was just like fuck this this sounds that's good good research for sounds... when you do sit down with Judith Collins though <laughs> Has a hot shell casing. Um, so, That's your first question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I got to the point where I was like, Charlotte, you're being ridiculous. You had something. You had something that most people in their lifetimes never find something that they can be themselves mm. as much mm. as when they're doing this one thing. Um, just You're just being petulant about it now. So I went to this adult ballet class that was run actually by one of my heroes in the Royal New Zealand Ballet when I was a kid, like a former principal dancer with the Royal New Zealand Ballet who's, you know, autograph I queued up for. Um, and I thought, I'll just go, like, I went in my running gear and I was like, I'm not buying ballet shoes. This is just, like, I was quite angry about it. Mm. And by the end of the class, I was like, fuck, yes, like, this is... The, oh. I'm back with my like, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just kind of, I felt like, oh, this is being... This is being myself. And because the pressure was off now, although the pressure's never entirely off because you're always like, yeah. how can I do this better? Yeah. Um, but the pressure of 
potentially if I can get it together I this could be my career but it's very knife edge and I have to be better than everyone else in this room and then I have to be better than everyone else in the city and then I have to be better than most of the other people in this country and it still might not work out mm. um, and I'm still you know five foot eight which means that I have to be extra amounts better than everyone else because I'm going to have to be a principal dancer because in a line of people I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb you know um with all of that gone I was just able to access the stuff about it that was good and mm. kind of meditative and um, kind of calming and expressive and all that kind of stuff. And it was still kind of hard because you're um, you're trained to look for kind of perfection and then suddenly you're looking at yourself in the mirror as this, like, 30-year-old person being like, oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, but I really, really enjoyed it. I actually ended up, we were talking a little bit before, I ended up mm. being a volunteer ballet teacher at this um, this ballet um kind of koha classes that um emily writes who's mm. kind of a mutual friend of ours mm. um mm. kind of originated and ran and that was amazing getting to introduce kids to dance in a way that wasn't prescriptive and they didn't have to the parents didn't have to buy a hundred dollars worth of uniform for a three-year-old to go to yeah, a ballet yeah. class which they might hate um so that was a really fun thing to do um but yeah, I have had some bad lower leg injuries and um, and that kind of flare up every time I go back to it. Um, and I'm sure there's probably better things I could be doing. Like I could be doing 10 million calf raises every day or whatever, but who's got the you, time? Weren't you working on a memoir or a piece of writing around that yeah, idea? I have written most of a book yeah. about <laughs> um, that started in an IIML paper at Vic um, mm. in the science writing paper um, and yeah I wrote I did a year where I did some papers there because I'd just gotten into writing and I could tell that my writing was kind of twee and <laughs> bad um, but I didn't know I did, I, I'd never been a writer before so I didn't know how mm. to make it good um, or it was all very pat and neat and I just like, it made me cringe, but I didn't know how to do it better. So I took the uh, creative nonfiction, Harry Ricketts' creative nonfiction mm -hmm. paper, which is um, magical, and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, it definitely... I think people have this idea that, that people who go to papers at the Vic School all just mm. sit around in a circle jacket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm very much like... I remember Beyonce, a Beyonce album came out during that semester and we had this like great discussion it was it was basically creating this amazing supportive space where someone like me who felt very kind of nervous about sharing of myself or doing something potentially badly mm. actually just felt fine about those things mm. like bringing writing about myself and reading it in front of people was, um, somehow Harry creates a space where that is doable even if you don't think it is. So I did that paper. I wrote some really personal stuff that I didn't intend to write. Um, and then at the end of semester, um, I know Harry was like, you should get that stuff published. And I was like, but then people would read it. <laughs> um, and so then the next semester, I went into the science writing paper and I ended up writing um, 10,000 words about about the kind, of the kind of person who, as a small child, wants to devote themselves to classical ballet. And then what happens to that kind of personality when you don't do it anymore for whatever mm. reason? Because it doesn't last forever. Mm. Um, and then I got a spin-off writing residency and wrote a lot more of that. 
Um, and the reason that it still hasn't appeared any, or that I haven't kind of tried mm. to get it to mm. appear anywhere, is partly time, and that I still, yeah, yeah, um, I still need more time, like just to finish it. Um, but also, I still have that thing about it's very personal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have this, I have this block about that stuff, and I don't, and I know that part of it's silly. And I've asked so many writers, like, how do you get over that? They're like, well, you want to publish it more than you worry about your mm. dad being upset or whatever. Mm. And so you just do it. And I'm like, that doesn't, that's not the answer. <laughs> it's an interesting, it is an interesting thing though. Like I've got this book of poems coming out in oh, congratulations. October. Thanks. And it's, um, it's all there. It's all ready to go basically. But like looking back through it, um, there were a couple, there's one poem that I just, I don't know what the word is, but I just had this reaction of like, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing because I'm still, I'm, I've, I've decided to remove it, but I'm still oh, grappling wow. with it because I, I really like it. Oh, that's hard And I really like it, but it's so, on one level, it is so stink about someone in my family. Ah, uh, right, okay. Without, um, well, no, it does name them actually, really, too. So it's yeah. very overt. Yeah. But it's also not meant that way. It's a tricky thing to explain, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I've read it before um, <clears throat> in public and it's been well received. Yeah. And I had to make that call of like, is this the right thing to put out in the world because I believe in it as a, a piece of artistic work? Yeah. Or is the right thing to remove this because this, you know, I don't want an awkward conversation with probably my mum yeah. telling me that that was very mean yeah and me yeah. going well it yeah. doesn't matter it's you know I like it and it's the truth and mm. no one really you know even people that read it they're not going to fully know this dynamic so yes. they're just going to get it yeah. it's still artistic license and I'm just not going there so I've removed it and put something else in that has a, a happier tone yeah. um but it was a real grappling point for me. I, I, I was just so on the fence. I kept having this, and it's it's such an ego-shaped thing of, like, only I care about this. Yeah. Only I care about, you know, am I doing the right thing because I think it's good. Yeah. It's a, think, so it's weird. So I think I, for me I it's know. not only about what other people think. No. It is also because of the job, the day job yes. that I have. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where what allowed me to write those things was being in this in this kind of magical vacuum bubble yeah. where it was like, fuck it, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to see what happens. And then ending up with something that I was really proud of. Um, but then thinking, what does it mean if all the if people who I go and interview for my journalism or people who read my journalism or people who, you know, message me on Twitter or whatever have read this essay I wrote about the worst day of my life, you know? Like, mm. what what does that... What does that mean and so and the thing is i know again it's such a weird egotistical thing because people publish such essays yeah, all the time yeah, you yeah, know? yeah um and and manage to exist in public absolutely fine um but yeah and i don't know i don't know I don't it's know. just a strange thing with playing with vulnerability isn't it like it's yes. on the one hand it's never been it's seemingly never been more um useful i want to say without loading that uh, and powerful to present yourself as having vulnerability um but yes how that can come back and impact you know and i can imagine for you particularly with what you have set yourself up to do 
Um, you don't want um, some sort of there is always a fear petty petty kind yes. of a petty kind of um, support coming in, and that being you know generated towards this actually serious serious work and in inverted commas like not that the essay is not serious mm. you know what I mean and, like, I do, and I think people who find that kind of response useful that's great like yeah, I kind of yeah, envy that that yeah. I'm like oh, I wish I could want to publish this yes um, but uh, by the way like no one might even want to publish it it might be shit I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like promoting myself really well here um, if you want to read a shit book of essays that I might not let anyone publish hit me up no um that's I, how all essay elevated yeah. pictures start by the way yeah. um but I think it's um I think it's also that it's the being vulnerable thing and it's also the um needing people within your own industry to take you seriously and think that you can do stuff that you'll be okay with tough things and that's really garbage because it has again come from sexism and that kind of thing because yeah. I'm a woman I'm not that young anymore I'm like 34 but I'm still I still look young enough that sometimes I show up to interviews and people are like oh I thought a Guardian correspondent was going to be better so you know like <laughs> well like you sound older on the phone or whatever um so yeah so I'm, I'm still kind of young enough that that happens a little bit although not as much as it did when I was 20 um oh my gosh your cat just has their claws. Yeah. It's right yeah. into my side. Um, um, she's tricky like girl. Um so there, I mean it's the same thing as the as the mental health dilemma for people, right? Is that yeah. everyone's like, oh be open about having mental health issues. Yes. Yeah, and then yeah. I have friends who have been open about having anxiety or depression and then it's it's gotten becomes... back to them when they've applied for jobs that people have gone, oh you know, newsrooms yeah. are really are really stressful places and you know we <laughs> How know would you cope that, with that Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it so, becomes the, again. It's the, it's that uh, it's another version of no one wanting to take the whole work and just find the soundbite and mm. or, you know or the piece and mm. and that gets can get used against yeah, people. Yeah. yeah, I also don't have particular aspirations in that sphere at this stage. Like it's not like I'm sitting at home every day thinking, oh, I wish I had the well, nerve to publish. It's not lucrative, so. Oh yeah, see, I clearly don't care about. That. No, no, I know, but you know what I mean? Like, there's that too. But I don't, it's not kind of my burning wish. Like, I have friends who it is their burning wish. um, And they're working towards it kind of actively. Although I did interview um, an author that I love recently on a on an unrelated story. I was just looking for comments Mm. to go into the story, and I thought, you know what would be cool to talk to, like, an author? And and called this, very nervously contacted this novelist who I am just kind of in Mm. awe of. Um, And... She said something along the lines of like, oh, you know, like I, I do read and like your Guardian work and said, and I know this was a compliment, you know, uh, I, th- I think it's even, it's even better when you, when you can write stuff that you've kind of really had time to write and be a bit more creative about. Um, and I was super flattered, but at the same time, I was like, am I wasting my life writing yeah. new stories? <laughs> Which I think are a really important pursuit and I enjoy them. Um, and that's kind of what I'm doing for now. I'm also trying to live a life where, which is going so badly, by the way, um, <laughs> that I'm not like working 20 million hours a day and that I do sometimes relax and don't just think about the stuff. Yeah, I don't imagine. I don't know how you would balance that because you would have quite strange deadlines too. Yeah, um, our stories are edited out of Australia, which oh, right. is yeah, pretty yeah. good. Okay. Um, so, but, still, but there is. Like, all up. There are time zone issues, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
blessing and curse, right? Yes. And when I was a freelancer, like I was a full-time freelancer for a couple of years, um, I never felt like I could say no. So yeah. someone would call me at three in the morning not having Googled what time yeah. it was in New Zealand, and I'd be like, no, I'm up. I'm not I'm doing up. anything. I can do that. Yeah. 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 Because it's partly the money and partly wanting oh, to keep the position. You want it, yeah, no, absolutely. You don't, yeah. you don't turn anything down yeah. until you're in that position, and you're almost never, in, you almost yeah. never feel like you're in that position to, right? You know, yeah. I used to do like Dom Post. You know, my whole thing at the Dom Post back in the day was I reviewed all these shows and and and, and did things like some interviews and stuff. I was never interested in to. To be able to get the the things that you, mm, mm. you know, I used to always say you have to go and um, watch a lot of frogs so that one day you can go and see Prince, mm, you know, mm. which which eventually happened <laughs> for me, but I had to yeah. pay for it. But um, that was the that was kind of the idea. It was like, and so yeah, you never want to turn stuff down. Yeah, yeah, and I've definitely got to the point where I do turn again, like a huge position of privilege where I can turn things down. Mm. That, aren't that badly paid or that the byline oh, not to be a dick but the byline wouldn't really mean anything to me like it would it would be an amount of work yeah, yeah for returns yeah. that would not be yeah would be pretty negligible so i can turn down stuff like that now whereas um when i was first starting out freelancing be like 150 new zealand dollars to write this uh, 1200 word feature that will take me three days to report great yes, please. I'm in. yeah 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 um which what a scoop it's <laughs> like a whole a whole other problem mm. um in journalism which is people don't have money to pay for it um so definitely to be able to get to a point where i could turn down the like 150 dollar like long reported story you just commissions yeah yeah i mean sometimes you get paid very well to do a piece you can't believe you got asked to do and that, but that doesn't happen very often. But when that does, isn't that just amazing? Like I was reflecting on that the other day. I was talking about how badly paid I've been, mm. and then I sort of said, you know, the, the the greatest story, in a way that I ever did, was someone asked me overnight if I would be the person to 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 write about the guitarist Jeff Beck, and nice. you know, and I was like straight away yes, and then they were like. For some insane reason, the editor of the listener would like three thousand words on him, and I was like, "I'm absolutely this person." And then they're like, "Only catches the interviews at eight o'clock tomorrow," and I was like, "I was ready twenty years ago." <laughs> and then he was like, "This is going to be the fee. Uh, it's I can't even remember what it was. It's X amount per mm. word." And I was like, "You know, I was almost ready to say, I'll pay you." Yeah. And so it ended up being like a really good payday yeah. it was a lot of work yeah. but it was nothing but pleasure but I was like I but how many times has that happened yeah. that's my one story yeah. story about that I also bet that it actually wasn't that much money no With it wasn't no of course it wasn't so used to being no, of course your, it what wasn't. you do being incredibly no you tell anyone else in any other yeah. industry and that laugh. someone that someone yeah you were ripped you off mate they, like they saw you coming <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and and it's actually just being fairly paid yeah or only ju- yeah or nearly yeah <laughs> nearly yeah. being yeah. fairly paid so that's um that's definitely a thing yeah, yeah totally For, and and i think that's just something that i've kind of just put to one side which is weird because i i mean i, I don't think we talked about it but like definitely grew up with parents who were who had come from working class households and working mm. class themselves and because my sister and i were quote-unquote smart my parents were like 
okay, you have to do something with this. Like, it's your responsibility. <laughs> mm. Like, my mom would be like, you can be a lawyer or a doctor. And I was like, oh, but... And she'd be like, lawyer or doctor? I would, I'll like, you know, when you become a doctor, I'm going to buy the plaque to put on your door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm pretty sure it just comes with that. Like, I think someone else does yeah, that. Yeah. I don't think you have to buy one for me, mom. But, um, <laughs> and of course, I knew that they would be proud of me no matter what and, you know, etc. cetera. But, um, and, and my dad, even, even though he's not really of the political persuasion of the guardian has like signed up for alerts on my name. And so I get a a message shortly after every story is published with his like reckons on the issue. Um, some of which are are pretty entertaining. Um, but yeah, so he's gotten, he's gotten really into it, but definitely there was an element of like you're in that generation of this family that can go to university Mm. This is what you're gonna do. Like, I think they, yeah. He never, he never expressly said it. He was always supportive. But I think, yeah. I think in some ways I've probably <laughs> not made the most of <laughs> the opportunity to possibly get some financial stability in my life by just choosing a better job. <laughs> but you're doing good work. That's fulfilling. You. Yes. Yes, that Isn't is true. That... And I am getting paid yeah. more fairly at this point than yeah, I have yeah. ever been paid. Yeah. And Which and is nice when it goes in that direction. That's right. I was just gonna say and yeah. and and you would be the envy of many of your friends and colleagues in the industry. Yeah, which is weird because it's actually just a different job. Like yeah, it's yeah, what I yeah. what I do is just it's just for a different audience and with a different framing of what they do I mean for a start it's just me and one other person so we can't cover everything yeah and we have to pick what to cover with a global audience in mind and then we have to pick how we cover it with a global audience in mind um so we really just do a different thing to what they do Mm. um but yeah and some people have been really kind about being super supportive the majority of people have been really kind and supportive but then there is sometimes an element of hostility from other New Zealand journalists some of whom were really friendly with me when I worked at RNZ. Mm-mm. But that is also understandable because it's a tiny pie in this country. Yeah. And I know, you know, the maxim is always, you know, um, it's, you know, you shouldn't treat, you know, you should celebrate other people's successes because they're not taking something off your plate no, by being exactly. successful, right? But in New Zealand journalism, it feels you like quite that. often are taking something yeah, yeah, off someone yeah. else's plate. And it feels like that, no matter yeah. whether, it, whether it even is or not. Yeah. Oh man, the amount of like grief I used to get for having a blog on stuff and it was yeah. like, uh, you know, about music. Like, but step aside way, and let someone else have a turn. It's like, do you know how much I don't get paid? <laughs> For doing all this. But those stuff <laughs> blogs, when, you know, back in the day, were yeah. appoint, daily appointment reading. For like sure. They had their stuff blog section. They had their moment within yeah. that moment yeah. where they were really big. That's yeah. right. Like where it was big news. Like they were, yeah. Yeah. They had and like their, your blog, Moata's blog, yeah. Jane Yee's blog. Yeah. Like, ev- like I remember every day. Yeah, there and was I would a li- Rogue's Gallery. There was a lineup of yeah. us. And it was cool though. Like, and I was the same. I read all of the other people on the site yeah. you know you wanted to see if you what they were about and mm. we had some little collaborations some time to time like mm. we did some you know publishing on like i remember swapping with the film blog and you know just things like that it was mm. it was it definitely had its moment but 
yeah, it was a lot of work for next to nothing. Mm. And people were like, you're so lucky to have that. And it's mm. like, well, I worked my ring out for no thanks. Yeah. And um, it's disrupted my life on a level where I can't stop doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, there's no sympathy needed, but yeah. it's like, it's not a great gig. <laughs> you know, it's, this is yeah. my choice and yeah. I own it. I'm totally owning that decision, but yeah. it's fucking dumb of me. Yeah. And I think people think that about journalism more broadly sometimes yeah, too. Totally. It's this gilded life. And in some ways it is, and I absolutely cannot complain, but um, it is very bad for you. And if you let it, it can be bad for your, your life and your personal mm. relationships and your sleep and your health and your mental health and all of that stuff. So you sound very conscious of that at least. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm getting slowly better. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think... Well, there's a nice correlation that you're getting more recognition and better paid and getting aware of <laughs> and getting aware of the need for the balance. Yeah. It's all coming together in the yeah. right... As you say, it's all trending up. I still don't think I have the balance, mm. but I know more about it now. Or I know isn't why that, I feel the way I feel. Isn't the new balance knowing that you need balance? <laughs> Sadly yeah, totally. and correctly, like isn't that the new mm. my life sorted? Is knowing that you need yes. to cite your look, cite, it's, uh, sort it's your me life? thinking that the fact that the last time I had a week off not working, where I did where I didn't have some other kind of responsibility, was I'm pretty sure my honeymoon, which was in September 2018. <laughs> I know that that's bad, <laughs> and. I would like to do something about it. Um, but at the same, you know, yesterday they're talking about, and again, this is not a political view at all. I hold mm. no, well, no, I maybe hold views on it, but I'm not going to talk about them here because I'm, you know, yeah, yeah, re yeah. news reporter. But, um, you know, talking about whether the election should be delayed. And part of me is like, I can't take it. Yeah, I can't yeah, take it going any I want longer. It, I, want I promised tomorrow. myself 19th of September. <laughs> I promised my husband. I'm yeah. like, I'm, I'm not that he, you know, he'll roll with whatever, but like, um, I, I told myself that Don't. if I could get through to the 19th of September, then I mm. could take a break and maybe the Raro travel bubble would be open. And like, or maybe my, my family still lives in Australia and, you know, um, maybe I could go and see my family. Mm. Um, Just whatever you do, don't write. My husband will roll with whatever on Twitter. You get so much abuse. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's just you then have to couch it as that because, yeah, you yeah. know, if I say, oh, you know, indicate that my husband might mind anything. Yeah, people, yeah, that's what I mean. Random like, you'll on, just get so many different angles. Some random man on Twitter will say, you shouldn't let your husband tell you what to do. Yeah. just be like, I don't know who you are. Yeah. Like, I don't even know what your name is from your Twitter <laughs> handle. Like, who are you? Um, yeah. You, for someone who came around here to try a new thing and was a, maybe a little bit reticent about letting all of the stories go, you've managed a solid 25 minutes, 30 minutes. That's how long we've talked for. Oh, really? It's been a couple of hours. <laughs> so what I'm saying is... You're very easy to talk got, to. You're got. Not, yeah, and that was part of the reason that I did say yes to this is because I've heard your podcast before and I love people giving their interviewees breathing space and and this idea of like a calm kind of almost cocoon environment we just have a nice chat i mm -hmm. love those podcasts and i like yours so. oh cool well it's, it's di but it's that thing you know we were talking about earlier too isn't it of um it's different every time like mm. like i listen back to some of them and i go oh god i interrupted there oh i should have shut up mm. and, I, and i've always got the um uh, the backstop of well it's 
it's not a I mean it is a real interview but mm. I've got that kind of there's that thing I can go well it's not a real interview it's a conversation yeah I'm allowed to guess about myself yeah, if I want to um and also fuck frankly dock my pay you know yeah. and stop listening mm. you know if, if, yeah. if it's really putting you off or whatever but yeah it's a case-by-case basis yeah. which is what which is what makes it cool I sometimes yeah. listen back and go that worked out really well. I've never cringed about any of them. Uh-huh. I've never not used one. Never. I was going to say, if this turns out to be really boring when you listen yeah. back to it, can yeah. you just not use it so that people aren't like, she was so fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess, yes, I would always consider yeah. that going, I would think that, but I was saying to someone there, you know, maybe, maybe there's one or two that I possibly didn't need to share because they weren't super exciting, but... I wouldn't want to say which ones they were, and mm. and I think that's a pretty good strike rate. Like yeah, I've always, yeah. I, when I started doing it, I had to assume that not everything would be usable, mm. but you hope that it is, and mm. so far it has been. Yeah, yeah. It's such a radio thing as well that occasionally you'll have someone where you just think, ah, that interview didn't quite have the goods, and I thought it was going to, but hey, oh, on big, to the next one. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Yeah. Hey, well, is there anything you want to? Um, I should have asked you or that you want to we've gone for ages we have gone for ages is there anything that I should have you know touched on or you would have liked to have touched on no I think I've said probably way more than I intended to (laughs) good Um, good people should pay for journalism (laughs) if they want it to be good (laughs) that's my plug (laughs) that's a good ending (laughs) like you yeah not even necessarily mine just pay for someone's that you like yeah um yeah that's so that people like me can um, keep doing journalism jobs where they let you actually do reporting and trust mm. you and um, respect experience and stuff. Um, I think that's, if, if people want journalism to be better, then that's one, not all, the only way, but it's one way that mm. it can happen. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a good ending. A little, a little desperate plea. Yeah, a little desperate plug. <laughs> um, that's not why I came here. I didn't just come here to do that. <laughs> Yankee game shit I made the Yankee have more famous than the Yankee can you should know I-